What are the most important digital transformation interviews that you missed in 2022? That's what we're going to do today is we're going to give you a countdown of the top 10 digital transformation interviews of 2022. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 100, a big milestone for the podcast. My name is Eric Kimberling, CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients through their digital transformation journeys. And with me, as always, is Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Excited for today. Yes, uh, we're right in the midst of the holidays. We're wrapping up the year, and a lot of you may not have seen all 50 some episodes that we've published this year, and you may have missed uh, episodes from previous years as well. But we've done a lot of interviews, we've covered a lot of content in 2022, and chances are pretty high that you missed a lot of them. So what we thought we'd do today is that we would count down uh, my top 10 list of what, what I thought were the most uh, relevant and the most important interviews, the most entertaining and informative interviews of 2022. Um, and really, it's not based on any sort of science, I'll be honest. It's more of a qualitative, uh, these are just the interviews I liked, and I felt like these top 10 interviews from 2022 were representative of all the different angles of digital transformation that, that you need to really understand, uh, ranging from you know the technology side to the organizational change side to process improvement uh, to software options and, and consideration, supply chain management, industry 4.0. Just all the topics that are relevant in today's day and age, that's really what I use to to create the list. And it's also based on, quite frankly, just the ones I enjoy the most. So uh, no science to it, very qualitative. But if I were to pick 10 clips of 10 different interviews that I would recommend listening to, uh, these are the 10. And we're not going to play the entire interviews because each interview is about an hour long. We'll play a, you know 10 to 12, 15 minutes of each one just so you can get a feel for it and get some of the, the highlights. And we'll also reference what episode each clip is from, so you can go back and listen to the full interview if you'd like. Uh, before I jump into this top 10 list, though, uh, Kyler, over the last few episodes, we've sort of, we've focused on your three favorites, your three favorite uh, interviews. And I'm not going to give a spoiler alert here, but two of the three that you had in your top three are in my top 10. One of them isn't, although I could make a pretty strong argument that it should be. Um, maybe, do you mind just summarizing real quickly what those three, what those three were, assuming you remember? Absolutely. If not, I can trigger. I can. Uh, I can set it up. No, for no, no. Of course, I. Of course, I remember. Um, so my top three that I chose were um, Tim Creasy um, from Prilosec, which you have on here as well, um, and he talks about kind of the future of organizational change and the importance of organizational change tactics when it comes to new technology or, or even new strategies within the organization. Uh, I think that it's a huge uh, fundamental piece to be able to kind of check the boxes of how you ensure that your strategies 
are enhanced for the overall human dynamic. Um, and he does such a great job of being able to relate that to very simplistic metaphors, but showcase the importance and the impact of culture and what is culture and how do you define it and how are you intentional about it. Um, I also I really um, subscribe to his methodology that the re's are the most expensive part of any sort of digital transformation. And we see that all the time in the work that we do on a daily basis, because unfortunately, a lot of times you don't realize your digital transformation is in trouble until it's in a lot of trouble and you need, um, you know, some significant help to fix it. So he was one of, you know, my favorite guests and definitely a, a main thought leader in the industry, obviously, that that um, we're in. So I enjoyed that one very much. Um, and then my second one was um, Bryce Brumley, who we will hear from again in this episode about supply chain. And again, supply chain and logistics is such a, a simplistic idea, but it's the main backbone to the overall organization. If there's a broken piece of your supply chain, inherently you're not able to get your service or product to the customer. And it, it can become a huge sort of toxic cancer within the organization because you need to be able to address it and have that visibility to understand it. And that's one thing that we've seen as a main trend within the last two to three years of being in technology systems and digital operations is the overall need for visibility into the supply chain, especially if it's a broken supply chain and that it can't exist as a siloed piece of the overall um, organization. It's the main organism. Everything is kind of birthed from there. So I, I thought she does a great job. Now, I really am a big fan of hers. Um, I enjoy the content she puts out because, again, she takes us through logistics, which isn't always, you know, the most exciting subject, but really showcases it in terms of pop culture references or ways in which you can really understand the impact of logistics because those behind the scene pieces that you don't really see, but are in fundamentally important to any success of a business. And then, then lastly, we... We had um, John from Lockheed Martin and talking about workforce analytics and the measurement of understanding things like organizational culture, attrition, trust. Uh, and I always like when we put an organizational change type of subject matter content category next to a metric. Because many people or many um, organizations have this misconception that those are not measurable. Those are not hard metrics that you should try to achieve. It's more of kind of an energy or a feeling that's not as tangible inside the business. And that's just simply not the case. So showcasing the power and the impact of that measurement and the overall need for that, especially when going through a technology implementation, any sort of large change within the organization is absolutely critical. And for us, the last thing I'll add there is is one of the, the top pieces of feedback we get when we go in and do a metrics-based assessment around organizational change is just pure shock from the executive team is they had no idea that was the actual case because it's not something that they've ever been intentional about measuring before. Uh, so that's one thing. If we if we can create that conversation and create that change, I think that is one of the most underutilized areas of just business strategy in general. 
So those were my top three, and I know we have a few sprinkled in there, um, but I'm excited to hear from your top 10 and all of these amazing guests that we've had on the show this year. It's pretty incredible, the amount of of thought leadership that has come from these overall interviews. Yeah, yeah, they are really good interviews. And it, like I said, there's, you know, the top 10, and then there's probably 35 or 40 or so that didn't make the uh, top 10 list when you look at all the interviews we we did at, in this podcast throughout the year. Um, and you mentioned, uh, you know, I'll, I'll uh, without giving away too much here, John Heiliger, the one from Lockheed Martin, the one you were just talking about that talked about workforce analytics, that was one I really struggled with. I almost had it in the top 10, but I, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it's one that I, like I said, could make a really strong argument for. Um, his is really good. That's a good episode if you, if you get a chance to go back and listen to it. Um, and you also mentioned um, Blythe Brumleaf, uh, the, the supply chain and logistics interview from episode number 82. And that's actually my, my number 10 um, interview in the top 10. So let's start there and we'll play you a clip here in a moment. And you, you did a good job of summarizing, Kyler, why that interview is so good. But she does a really nice job of talking about a pretty expansive conversation about supply chain and logistics, but she does it in a way that's very simplified and easy to understand. Um, and, you know, given where we are this time of year, end of year, we're just coming out of a, a busy holiday season for much of the world where supply chain issues are amplified even more so than they already were uh, post-pandemic. So um, great conversation we had with her. So let's roll our number 10 or my number 10 choice for uh, number 10 on the top 10 list, which is Bryce Brumleaf talking about supply chain and logistics from episode number 82. So I guess just to start, you know, I thought this would be a great sort of 20,000 foot flyover starting point for us. And then we can sort of dive into your background and, and your experience with supply chain and, log- and logistics in a little bit more detail. But if we just sort of back up and look at... Um, what 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 is logistics? I mean, just help us understand. Maybe we kind of know what it is, or we've heard the term, but just maybe help us understand what is logistics and how does it fit into supply chain management in general. Sure. So so supply chain is essentially the the compo- bringing all of the components that you need together to build a product, build a solution, and then ship those items from port to porch. I heard that phrase recently, and I just love it from port to porch. So the supply chain is that greater initiative of bringing all of those components together, the component of the component. But then logistics is the transportation management. So whether it's land, sea, air, um, also the, the storage of those goods, so warehousing, that logistics is really the transport of those goods to get them where they need to be. It may be, you know, you need to get them to the the business or you need to get them to the consumer, but the logistics is the transfer of those goods from point A to point B. Gotcha. Okay. So it's, it's, uh, so supply chain is everything really from getting raw materials to the manufacturing warehousing, um, the port to porch part of it is within that. And then so we're, we're kind of focusing within the logistics space in that port to porch space. And I hadn't yeah, heard because, that either. Great, well, great yeah, it's, it's such a great phrase that I, I was like, oh, gosh, I hope that, you know, I, I went and looked and to see if that website was actually taken. And it is. So unfortunately, <laughs> I could not claim it. Um, so shout out to the person who who did create it. But I think, you know, for, for a lot of folks, they just see the goods around them. And, you know, they never really paid attention to how they actually got to where they're at. And if you look around your room, which is something that, you know, a, a maritime is a, a perfect example of this where maritime shipping, you know, 90% of all of your goods. If you look around the room right now that you're in, 90% of those goods were shipped on a cargo ship. And so for 
for us to think about the complexities of how to get your product into a storage facility and then from that storage facility to a container and then that container onto a ship and then the ship to you know another side of the globe and then to unload it and to transport it to another storage facility and then that storage facility gets transferred to another distribution facility it's just it's an incredible amount of work and software that is all involved in this process um, but the at the end of the day it's still a lot of these transportation you know solutions that we have been using for hundreds of years whether it's you know transporting these goods by by a ship or by a boat um, or even some of the river systems you know that that you know canvas throughout the entire world it's just so much going on that comes together in order to get the stuff that we need to you know buy off Amazon or to buy off of another provider and get it shipped to us in two days there's a lot of things that go on during that process yeah and and things certainly have not gotten any easier with the pandemic and the disruptions and bottlenecks to supply chains that happened as a result. Um, what what are um, some of the ways that the logistics space has evolved in recent years, either just strategically and or in response to some of the impacts of, of COVID and the related supply chain impacts? So I, I think of this in, in two ways. I think from the technology or technology aspect, that's a huge one. You know, for the majority of the time that this industry has been operating, it's been, you know, sheets that we manually fill out. It's a bill of lading that someone physically prints out, someone physically signs, and then that bill of lading goes from one part of the world to the other. That part of the process has not changed, but the, the technology that's come into the space. And I think the data sharing that's gone on is incredible to see. And we're, we're really only, I mentioned, you know, earlier, we're only kind of scratching the surface on, you know, on the content side of things, but on the technology side of things, it, it, especially from data sharing, I think that we are really only scratching the surface, um, being able to, you know, save, you know, 0.5% on the cost of shipment for your goods is an incredible savings and technology can give you that. And when you're talking about, you know, maybe like a pointed, uh, a percentage point or even a half a percentage point of savings, you know, think about a, a giant cargo ship. It just, if they have a making, you know, maybe $2.7 billion in revenue for the year, that 0.5% is a lot of money that you can save just simply by adopting new technology, data sharing between different companies, um, allowing you know third-party vendors to you know act, have access to that data, I think is another advancement that I really never thought that would come to fruition. I still think a lot of companies are scared to share their data because it is you know proprietary to their company. But on the flip side, the the amount of benefits that you can get simply by data sharing, I think is incredible. And we're only really scratching the surface. Another big area that I think has changed is that the ability to network in a digital environment first. You know, when COVID hit, that was the, because if you think about it, a lot of our connections that we made were made, you know, going to trade shows, going to events, going to conferences. And when COVID happened, that just dried up instantly. And so we were forced to change our networking habits from the things that we were used to to an entirely new environment. So you've seen the growth and you can see, you know, all the people in the chat right now that are coming in from LinkedIn. LinkedIn is one in particular that just exploded as far as, you know, network conversations that you can have. You can have a digital handshake with somebody from across the world and then be able to eventually meet them at a conference, you know, later on, obviously when things, you know, sort of settle down from, you know, the, the, the COVID experience. Um, but nowadays it, it's really, 
quite remarkable to see that, you know, Apple and Spotify, they don't even technically have a supply chain category in like their podcast or even like a, you know, a subcategory under business. But we still feel like there's is so much content that's coming out of these platforms. I saw a list the other day that now there are top 75 influencers in supply chain list. There's a top 60, you know, a supply chain podcast list. You know, these things did not exist two years ago. And a lot of those podcasts, honestly, are not very active anymore. But the amount of activity that we've seen since then has been just a dramatic increase. The 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 knowledge base of sharing of information is so crucial to this industry. We talked about, you know, data, data connections and data sharing, but also the information and the knowledge base and the experience sharing that's happening on social media, I think is another just, um, it's something that the industry has needed for quite a, a long time. And I'm glad to see it coming to fruition. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is interesting how, you know, once you start hearing politicians and mainstream media start talking about supply chain management, that's when you know it's sort of it's it's, it's a fairly big deal. And it was I remember right when the pandemic hit and just hearing politicians and people on TV talk about supply chains. I'm like, wow, I've never heard you never hear anyone talk about supply right. Chain. It was it was almost weird. So it's good that it's become front and center. And then you know, more recently, it's become front and center in a um, in in a less positive way, I guess you'd say, in terms of people concerned about the supply chain, and rightfully so. Um, what do you think, you know, how do you think organizations are going to adjust to this, to this new reality, or whatever you want to call it, even though I, I hate that term, the new reality. Um, but what, but what, how are organizations going to respond? How, are, how do you think they'll evolve their supply chains and their logistics, logistics function within that to sort of adjust to this new world we're in? So the, I would say that for a lot of folks, adjusting to the communication aspect has been uh, very challenging for them. These are folks who have never been used to being on camera, um, not used to doing something like this where we're, we're going on live and we're talking about industry issues and how can we solve these complex problems. So I think that for a lot of organizations becoming comfortable with being on camera, executives becoming comfortable talking about, you know, not just you know, what's going on in their company, but the news that they may see out in the world, you know, maybe it's on freight waves, maybe it's on, you know, some other, you know, inbound logistics, some of these other, you know, supply chain focused media companies, maybe they see something there and they don't agree with it. Um, being comfortable sharing their opinions, not just in a boardroom, but in an online environment. Um, I think that that is still, if you are an executive in this space right now and you're not doing that, you are missing out on a goldmine opportunity because that is the quickest way and the most efficient way to have, you know, these digital platforms work for you and sell for you and market for you 24 seven. You know, we can't, you know, that as, as I think for a lot of folks, we can't, you know, we're doing this live stream for about an hour today. But afterwards, what happens with this live stream? You're going to take it, you're going to put it on a podcast. You maybe will take it and use social media clips to put out to your social media network. That kind of content works for you 24-7. And so for I think for a lot of companies, adapting to that evolving business model, learning the technology that you have to use, not just to keep your business running, but also to keep the messaging running, I, I think is going to be one of the bigger challenges that a lot of companies are still just very um, challenged by they they um, they don't see the investment in it 
quite yet, but the ones that have over the last couple of years, they are reaping the rewards because the recruiting is getting easier. Retention is getting easier. Um, the ability to communicate with their team, they're probably, you know, for a lot of companies, you know, they might not be full-time back into the office yet, but it's an ability to, you know, enhance those digital communications and supplement that communication until you're able to meet in person. Um, I think too, you know, we mentioned as, as far earlier with, as far as like the adoption of, you know, new technology and with adoption of new technology, I think that's another thing that's a big challenge for a lot of companies is that they see a lot of, you know, they're sort of as, uh, I guess, guilty of falling for like the shiny object syndrome, where they see like a shiny new piece of software, but they have no idea how the in the trenches employees are using software and getting the job done today. Um, so I think that, you know, it's great that we have all of this technology coming into the space, but how are you using that technology to make the end user or not really the, well, the end customer, of course, is going to benefit from it, but the end user who is actually using it on a day-to-day -day basis, I think there's definitely some room that needs, or some room for improvement that needs to be made there and, you know, to try to avoid that shiny object syndrome where you're just going to buy a piece of software and think it solves all of your problems when, you know, in a variety of different industries and aspects, that's just, uh, it's, it's, it's not the right way to look at it. Right. Yeah, and it's interesting to hear your marketing slant, and I know that's your focus is is marketing. But marketing within logistics, uh, to your point earlier, you know, having that kind of focus and that sort of a spotlight on the marketing opportunities for logistics companies—that's just something that hasn't been that common in in the space. Because, like you said, B two B marketing has traditionally been pretty stale. You know, when you compare it to B two C and what some of the big consumer product companies do. So that's that's pretty interesting. Okay, that's just a clip from our number ten interview in our top 10 list, Blythe Brumleave. And that topic was supply chain and logistics. If you want to go back and listen to the full interview, you can go back to episode number 82 uh, from earlier this year and you can find that. So that was number 10. We're going to continue the countdown with number nine. When we come back, it's actually just to give you a little teaser. It's the only software vendor uh, or representative uh, president of a software vendor that is in the top 10 list. So uh, be sure to stick around to find out what that one is. First, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Happy holidays to all of our wonderful clients here at Third Stage Consulting Group. We sincerely appreciate your business and partnership and look forward to serving you in 2023. The entire Third Stage team is wishing you and your family all the joy that the holiday season can hold. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control episode number 100 big milestone for us. It's uh, not only our 100th episode, but it's also the last episode of 2022. So it's only fitting that we cover our uh, top 10 interviews from 2022. So this is the uh, the episode you don't want to miss. If you missed a bunch of episodes throughout the year, or maybe you've never heard this podcast before, this is the one you want to listen to to get a, a feel for what some of the guests are all about. So number nine on our list, uh, we just had Blythe Brumleaf, who's number 10, talking about supply chain and logistics. Number nine on our list is the only software vendor or a interview with a software vendor that uh, made the list. I'm always very skeptical to do this. Um, and in fact, I, I almost didn't invite this guest on the show, but I'm glad I did. Uh, nothing against her, by the way. It had nothing to do with her. It's just I was somewhat resistant to introducing vendors into the show. 
thinking that it, you know, we didn't want to turn it into a big commercial for different software vendors because we're technology agnostic. This podcast is technology agnostic, but um, this guest did a really nice job of talking about the future of ERP software. So I wanted to certainly leverage her background um, at Epicor. She's the president of Epicor, and this is, by the way, Lisa Pope, who's the president of Epicor, but she also has an extensive background at other software vendors, including Infor, among others. So she's been in the space for a long time. I think she's been doing this longer than I have. So she has a really good feel for where the industry is now and where it's headed. And so we wanted to have her on the show to talk about the future of ERP software. Um, so that's my choice for number nine. This was episode number 77, by the way, if you want to hear the whole interview. Um, but Kyler, what did you recall of that interview? What were your thoughts of that interview from when we had that a few months ago? Absolutely. I mean, um, Lisa Pope is uh, certainly an impressive figure within just the overall software space, especially I always have to give a, a plug for a, a leading female in the space. Uh, so she's, you know, definitely an innovator. Um, and I, I think she did such a great job of explaining the roadmap of the overall industry in general, as opposed to just Epicor. Um, and, and she really showcase the opportunity to create an omni kind of type of presence when it comes to a network throughout the organization as opposed to just a system. Uh, so I thought she did a great job of holistically kind of hitting on all of the different strategies and techniques and opportunities within um, the overall enterprise, digital enterprise space. Um, so it's it's a great kind of holistic interview, if, if you will, um, like I said, to take you through what does it actually look like from the vendor's eyes of what are their, the future plans of the industry? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I, the women in tech or the, the women leadership angle is a really good one. And that was part of what was intriguing about having her on the show too, is it's always nice to get a different perspective than the usual, you know, middle-aged guy like me that, <laughs> that is in the, the tech space. So hearing it from a different perspective, uh, is really interesting. So I, I agree with you on that. And, and uh, we do in the in the discussion, we do talk a little bit about women in tech, we don't dive into it in a ton of detail. Uh, but we do touch on that. Um, so let's roll the clip here of Lisa Pope, who's the president of Epicor software, which is by the way, is a, is a tier two, uh, larger tier two uh, ERP system. And she was on the show back on episode number 77, talking about the future of ERP software. So let's roll the clip here. And one of the things I really like about your background too, and the reason I thought you'd be so interesting to have on the show, among other reasons, is because you have that sort of multiple, you have that experience working with multiple different ERP systems. You've you've kind of grown up not just working with one specific type of solution, but a number of different ones. Um, just to start, maybe how would you, if you had to sort of summarize how enterprise technology and ERP systems have evolved in all this time that you and I have been doing this, how, how would you sort of summarize that the uh, development in the the evolution of ERP systems over the last couple decades? Well, I think, I mean, definitely for the better, right? When I started, believe it or not, software was actually tied to the hardware platform. So it was actually hardware companies that went out and traditionally sold software that only worked on their platform. So if you picked HP, you got HP software. If you went with NCR, you had their version of a distribution or a manufacturing product. So. Um, you know, thank uh, God we moved past that. We got to open systems and uh, and then really focused in on things that, you know, were desktop heavy, right? So we all went through that smart client era um, where everything was on the desktop, everything was loaded on the desktop, um, lots of IT, lots of administration um, and difficult. I can definitely tell you from uh, my experience, um, 
working with global customers there, especially trying to get everybody's version correct, all the challenges that happen with that. And so naturally now, I think the, the best thing about enterprise um, resource planning and really mission critical applications is, is the fact that these applications, now you have a choice, right, to not just run them on-premise um, with typically a much lighter client than we saw in the old days, um, or move the entire infrastructure to the cloud. And so I think, you know, obviously that transition has really enabled business in a whole different way. Um, so really exciting to see that. And like I said, I, I actually remember when we used to do demonstrations hauling the hardware along, you know, with uh, with the system, right? So you literally had to bring everything to a customer to show them a demo. Right. And, you know, now we, uh, we just do it all online or a lot of it. So it's uh, really great to see. Yeah, yeah, that's great. It makes traveling a lot easier, I imagine, um, having yeah. not having to travel with all that stuff. Um, so what about, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about Epicor, just to, before we sort of dive into some of these other uh, questions I have for you. Tell us a little bit about Epicor for anyone on the line that maybe hasn't heard of Epicor or isn't very familiar with, with the company and the, and the product. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, it's about a billion dollar software company, and we're very specialized in terms of our focus. Uh, we really sell enterprise solutions into the make, move, and sell global economy. So if you're a manufacturer, if you're a distributor, if you're a retailer, uh, basically selling those essential goods um, across that economy, that's really our target space. So uh, we do have solutions that cross all three of those, those areas. So we may have a distributor who does some light manufacturing. They may also have retail counters. So that whole um, suite of products could sort of be used uh, as we're seeing many of our customers sort of um, transition their businesses from being solely focused maybe on manufacturing or solely focused on distribution and starting to do a little bit of everything. Um, but it's been, um, it's a global company. Um, so we are basically all over the world. Our customers range from um, very, you know, small, medium to business sizes, all the way to uh, enterprise accounts. And, uh, and really, again, very focused on sort of that global reach. So many of our customers have um, hundreds to thousands of stores or hundreds of locations um, that they're dealing with, you know, how to uh, really enable their solutions across that environment. And we are right. headquartered out of Austin, Texas. I saw a few people uh, in, uh, in the chat from, uh, from Texas. I'm based here in Dallas as well. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great, and we have we have a lot of people joining here from all over the place. Uh, Chico, Texas. Uh, we have someone uh, juiced from from Netherlands, um, someone from Malta, Manchester, England, India, Germany, um, Denver, Colorado, where I'm based, Miami, Spain, um, India, another India, Cairo, Egypt. A lot of a lot of different locations. So thank you everyone for for letting us know where you're joining from today. Um, so. What about, let's start with, um, there's a lot of different things you and I can talk about. We, when we were prepping for this, I think we, we sort of, our minds went a million different directions and, and I'll try to focus us, but I'm uh, curious to hear with the audience, what kind of stuff the audience wants to cover too. But just to start, you know, one of the major themes that um, you and I talked about in, in preparation for this was um, cloud systems and sort of, uh, you know, how cloud systems have evolved in recent years, what, what options customers have, do they really need to be going to the cloud now? What if they don't want to go to the cloud? Maybe just help us to start, maybe help, help us un unpack the whole cloud theme or, or premise. You know, what? where do you see, um, how do you, how have you seen cloud systems evolve and how do you see cloud systems evolving now? Yeah, I think it's a really important question. You know, when we first started positioning cloud, I think we saw, especially in some of these mission critical environments that 
most companies wanted to start with sort of what I would call a point solution, right? They didn't want to move their ERP to the cloud. They tended to start maybe with this, you know, salesforce.com, right? Maybe a service-based app, um, you know, their HR applications. And that was sort of a way for them to test the water. And we're still seeing many accounts, if they're making a cloud transition to start, that's typically what they'll do. Um, once they sort of get comfortable with that, they see the benefit of it, then there's usually a little bit more of an interest of saying, okay, let's now proliferate this and look for other cloud applications that sort of, you know, support that portfolio. Um, and then ultimately, I think typically there are a number of catalysts that we see that sort of maybe will have a customer say, okay, cloud now. Um, but I think we have definitely seen a huge transformation um, even in these key industries that are highly global for customers to choose cloud, uh, especially over the last two years. And we can certainly drill down more into that factors, you know, with the pandemic and other things that I think have led to that. Um, but I do think um, the trend is good. I think overall it does help enable a number of things that I know we'll talk about a little bit later in our uh, conversation. But I also think, you know, choice is still important. We do have many customers who, for whatever reason, it could be highly compliance, could be a very customized application that, you know, really does take um, a lot of processing that they feel is better run on premise. But I think the good news for a lot of our clients today is that there is a choice. Um, so the direction is certainly applications moving there, but uh, customers are able to sort of, you know, decide when the, when the timing is right, or in many cases, business, um, indicates maybe when it's time to consider to move. Right, right. Yeah, makes good sense. And so it's, uh, in other words, it's not an all or nothing, you know, necessary need to double down on cloud right now, you can sort of ease your way into it using point solutions or, or other migration or phasing strategies to get there. Yeah, and I think what we've seen is typically there will be sort of an executive that comes in that feels really strongly. So, you know, we'll see a CFO come in, put in a few point solution applications and then say, hey, I see the benefits with this. We really should consider maybe moving more of our key systems. And, and then we'll often see a selection process start. I know you guys can get involved in those. And, and that's usually a catalyst with some kind of business change. Um, we've also seen companies that are highly acquisitive um, want to have a platform to more easily integrate um, their acquisitions. And so for them, Cloud is an area where they can easily sort of move someone onto the system and then sort of divest or roll them off that system. Um, and then that uh, company can obviously still leverage that same software with the vendor in a new environment. So there are some real benefits that we're seeing from a business perspective that, you know, again, certain executives are sort of looking for cloud to solve some real business challenges. And I think that that is what has probably driven it. The technology is is great, and I can definitely talk about the advantages on the technology side, but um, even better when you have some real business reasons sort of driving that need for change. Yeah, yeah. What, just out of curiosity, what roughly what percentage of your customers would you say are either partially or fully on the cloud now versus the legacy on-prem, you're still trying to sort of convince them to move over. What, do you yeah, have an idea? I would say in terms of our existing install base, probably 70% are either on cloud or in a hybrid where they're running some cloud applications and some on-premise. Um, what's interesting though, I think, is when you look at new systems, so customers that are making that selection process today, it, it's much higher. We're seeing more than 70% of new systems 
going to the cloud and, uh, and not in a hybrid fashion. So making an all-in cloud decision to say, yes, I'm going to go full ERP and run that in the cloud. So definitely new, I think, you know, people that are selecting and making that investment now are probably more likely to make a cloud decision. And again, the, um, there are certain industries that we see in certain specific cases, some of the larger clients that already have, for example, um, quite a bit of infrastructure set up. They've got all the IT support. They've got the resources. Um, a number of them may choose to still stay on premise or if they are highly regulated and very concerned about some specific industry compliance capability, um, we may see a few of them staying on premise. But I think, you know, the advances that you're seeing with security in the cloud and so many other things, other benefits for why companies want to consider cloud, I think that's really helping to drive that, those decisions. Right. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Okay, that was just a clip of Lisa Pope, who's the president of Epicor Software, talking about the future of ERP software back from episode number 77. That was number nine on my top 10 list here. And we're going to continue the theme of ERP with our number eight guest, uh, who's on the show. And uh, another person that at the time was working for a software, uh, VAR, I should say, it wasn't a software vendor, but it was a, uh, an implementer. Um, we had him on the show to talk about alternatives to tier one ERP systems. And certainly Epicor, Epicor who uh, Lisa was part of uh, in number nine on our list, um, she is one of the uh, alternatives to ERP software, Epicor being a tier two system. So we, we had um, a guest on to talk about alternatives to tier one ERP systems. This is back from episode number 58. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll share with you who that guest is, and we'll play a clip for you. But first, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 100. We're counting down the top 10 interviews of 2022 from this podcast, and we're up to number eight now. And number eight is actually Dan Aldridge, who was on the show a few months ago. I think it was back in March or April, uh, so early in 2022. This is episode number 58. He was on the show talking about alternatives to tier one ERP systems, and we wanted to have him on the show just to talk about you know, if you're a big company or a mid-sized company and you think your only options are SAP, Oracle, Microsoft, is that true or do you have other options? And that's really what we wanted to dive into. Somewhat of a loaded question, obviously. We we know, I think we probably all know where that, where that conversation is going. And the answer is yes, there are alternatives. And the next question becomes, well, what are those alternatives and how do you find the right alternatives and how do you compare those alternatives to the tier one ERP system? So that's number eight on my list. What were your thoughts and recollections from that interview, Kyler? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think 
as as you guys kind of talked about, a lot of times those tier two, not only systems, but also partners when it comes to implementation partners, um, cloud hosting partners are op- often misunderstood in the fact that they you know, aren't capable enough or have the functionalities to support a business in that way. And, and again, it goes back to that fundamental idea, as you and Dan talked about, of the evaluation of making sure that you're actually going through a hundred percent technology agnostic and independent evaluation in order to see what are all of the options on the table. Um, you know, it's creating a relationship with a partner you can trust that you can count on and that you can, you know, make sure that is right for your organization. And that's really key. Even, even if they might not have as much name recognition in the marketplace, there is um, something to be said about that more boutique hands-on approach that these tier two options are able to give clients um, within a technology implementation. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I I totally agree. And I think that people, uh, a lot of people don't understand or realize that there's a lot of really good tier two and tier three and industry focused solutions out there that have spent considerable time and money developing these products. And in many cases, they're focused on one type of functionality or one industry, which can be a good counter to the tier one model, which is to try to be everything to everyone for, you know, to simplify their, their intent. Um, so, you know, there's benefits of that, but there's also benefits of having a, a, a custom or a industry focused solution or a functional focused solution. Um, the other thing, just as a side note, not related to the, to the content of this interview, I just, this interview is pretty memorable, not only because Dan's a great guest to have on the show. He's very articulate. He's been doing this for a long time. But I also remember I was in Europe and I just got into Europe and I was really jet lagged. So I was kind of, I was kind of out of it um, during the interview. So yeah, I guess when you listen to it, you can judge for yourself. Do you think I was out of it or did I, did I know what I was doing? Um, but either way, regardless of your thoughts on me as the moderator, I think that the guest is, is what we're focused on here and he's, he's really good. So let's roll the clip of Dan Aldridge from episode number 58, talking about alternatives to tier one ERP systems. Instead of talking about the big name vendors, the pros and cons, what about the the other vendors in the market, which is, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of other vendors besides the the three that we mentioned. What are some of the pros and cons of working with a potentially lesser known, uh, but still viable, potentially viable product? Well, the pros are that, you know, it may be a case of just name recognition is not there and a really, really good system. Um, that, you know, um, yeah, you just haven't heard of them. I mean, for example, Priority is is an Israeli-based company. We have offices all over the world and customers all over the world. But in in Israel, we're essentially the SAP of Israel, if you want to say. Um, everybody knows us. We, we are the majority of the market there. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a really good software package. It's we're here. We're all cloud. We do have the on-premise capability. So, um, but uh, we're mostly cloud, and we're we're heavily cloud. So we have global implementations that we want to do on AWS, and uh, you know, implement everywhere. So uh, with a, a company with a global footprint that's not the huge, and they they can't afford the huge vendors, um, it's a really good option. Very well priced like I said, heavily cloud, um, and that's the way the market's going. Um, really nice capabilities in, in the areas of workflow. So I, I think the ones that are uh, 
cloud vendors, a lot of times the workflow is easy, easy to use. It's very uh, low code, no code uh, type of arrangement, you know, where you don't have to program like some of the big, big ones, you have to program those uh, kinds of workflows and things like that. So those can be some really good advantages. Uh, and a huge thing is, is just time to implement. Time to implement, you know, we're talking two, three months in some cases with a small to medium sized business on a, on a good ERP cloud package. Um, so if you're dealing with it, because it comes up on the cloud, the versions are upgraded, customizations come along with it. Um, it's, it's quite easy to implement and it's easy to use too. I mean, a lot of the bigger ones are complicated and, you know, uh, busy screens and all kinds of things like that. So it's easier for user adoption. And, and you, you talk a lot about this and, and you're absolutely right in change management is a lot easier with the smaller package, maybe a lesser known package, but a really good solid one. Um, and I think if, if they're running on AWS, for instance, that's the way we run uh, Microsoft Backbone and you don't have to maintain any of the databases or anything like that. You don't have to have a big IT staff. Um, and, and a lot of the users can configure things like reports and workflows and things like that. Simple to use workflow tool is a huge thing. Um, and a lot of the lesser known ones will have that. Yeah. Yeah. And that yeah, flexibility, ease of use, change management, all that stuff. I mean, those are really good, good points that, that I agree with, um, with you on that. Um, so what, given that there are these other options in the market that may, yeah, maybe they're lesser known, but they still are viable and they, they have strengths in many cases that some of the other bigger ERP systems don't have. Why is it that or, that so many organizations get enamored by the big names? Is it as simple as what you said before, which is no one ever got fired for implementing A, B, or C, or is it, or is there more to it? Or would you add to that list of why why organizations become sort of blindly drawn to those systems? Yeah, I think it's it's references, and you know they know of other companies that have implemented it, and you know so they feel more secure in that. Um, but, um, you know, it's not necessarily the case, but I think, um, I think that, uh, our main issue or the main issue of a lot of the sort of second tier down is that, uh, brand awareness mm. simply, I mean, you know, we've been around since 1986, you know, uh, and dominate the market over there. And there's a lot of other, you know, companies also second tier that are like that you know, that, that uh, are just unknown because it's, uh, it's a big deal to uh, have a m massive marketing machine, you know, and, and have Gartner and, you know, people like that behind you in that upper quadrant, you know, it stays pretty stable, as you know, it's mm -hmm. SAP, Oracle, Microsoft, they're all, all, you know, in that top right magic quadrant. Um, and then, you know, maybe the, you know, the second tier doesn't get the same sort of uh, consideration from the big and, and, you know, when you're dealing with Gartner, you're dealing with, uh, larger companies, um, that they are only kind of looking at that upper quadrant, right? So they're not necessarily looking at the ones that are even just slightly down. So it's kind of reputation. It's kind of what the analyst firms like the Gartner say about it. And it's just safe, you know, or right. it's perceived as safe, which is, which is kind of interesting because if the time to implement is so huge, as you know, 
the, the things that will uh, dictate whether sometimes whether it's a failure or, or success is the time to implement. The cost can be staggering. Um, and, you know, if you're implementing it in a sort of a modular way instead of some of the lesser known ones that have the whole footprint, including e-commerce and ERP and MES and all the things that link to it through APIs, it's a um, it's a much more uh, it's not a modular approach that some of the big ones take, right? So you you might implement purchasing and accounts payable, right? But every the other pieces are not there yet. So they're doing it in phases and, and it takes a long time and a lot of consulting resources. You're usually dealing with a partner, whereas you know some of the smaller ones, they do their own implementations, if they do their own product development and you get a much more personal experience, if you will, um, and, and you get care. I mean, we're not, for instance, we're not taking people in the US, we're dealing mostly with our own implementations, with our own team. We have some very good partners, some big partners and some small that can do implementations, but in general, we're not taking it and putting it off to a VAR and saying, you know, put it over there and forget it. So, right. and, and I think that's, it's not just us, but it's, it's some of the lesser known ones that really have to prove themselves. They have to have a personal touch. They have to have support that, um, you know, is very uh, responsive and things like that and, and not pushed off to a VAR, you know? Right. So in your career then, what, what was it that drew you personally to, to the, these non-household name products? Not, not that they're, you know, a lot of people have heard of priority software and in for and some of the other systems you've worked with over the years. Um, but what was it that drew you personally to the to the you know, let's call it the smaller, not small, but smaller software vendors? Yeah, so it, it, it just kind of transpired that way. I mean, when I joined Bond, I, I was recruited. I got an MBA and I was recruited right out of, of school, essentially. And I had a finance background and I was recruited by Bond. Bond was sort of new in the U.S. and they were sort of the Dutch SAP if you will. So um, it was, they were very exciting. They were growing really fast. Uh, they just landed Boeing. We had Carrier. We had all these sort of enterprise level manufacturing companies. And um, so um, I wanted to join the up and coming one. They used, uh, Jan Bond, who's the founder, he always used to say, we're number two, but we're the best. Right. You know, um, and I, uh, I, I wanted to join the up and coming one. And, and it just so happened that that one was the one. Um, and also I'm fascinated and I have been for you know 25 years that I've been doing this. I love manufacturing. So I was drawn to their kinds of clients and I, I got to visit many uh, large enterprise customers at that time. And first thing I would do is go to the shop floor. So I was a finance guy, so I did cost accounting and everything. And they'd say, go, go up to the uh, finance office. And I'd say, no, no, I want to go down on the floor and see how you build this thing. Because I was just fascinated with it. And then I kind of fell in love with both ERP, which I you know, still do today, and manufacturing companies in particular. So that's yeah. how I got into it. And then um, so it just so happened that Infor bought... Infor Global Solutions, which is kind of like that next, just right underneath the enterprise, and it's in your uh, in your Battle of the Titans back back when you were do. I think you still do that mm -hmm. Battle of the Titans, yeah. So it's like number four, right? So uh, they bought Bond, 
and they uh, they have a product called In4LN, which is uh, strictly manufacturing, strictly enterprise level, pretty much. Um, and I just I I developed a consulting firm in that, and I grew a consulting firm, and I just I just loved everything about it. So again, they were this next year down. And then finally, when Priority bought my consulting business in 1996, I mean, excuse me, 2016, I get my dates messed up. A couple decades <laughs> after. <laughs> yeah, 2016, uh, I had the opportunity to build another one, you know, here in the US. Um, and that was a very exciting, you know, having built a couple businesses and done exits before. It was a very exciting proposition. And I saw Priority as, as this kind of like the bond, you know, the next one up and coming a lot of investment recently and that was very exciting to me okay that was a clip of dan aldridge on the show back in episode 58 if you want to see the full episode or the full interview you can go back to episode number 58 to listen to or watch that talking about uh alternatives to tier one erp systems so great discussion and that that's going to lead us to a, a, a bit of a, a 180 we're doing a, a complete shift here and uh not intentionally of course um, but as we move to number seven on our list, we're going to talk about the psychology of change. So we're starting to get into the human side of things. We've, we've sort of transitioned out of supply chain and focus on ERP software and where ERP software is headed and alternatives to ERP software. Now we start to get into our first interview in the top 10. And uh, another spoiler alert, this is not the last interview related to change management that you'll hear in this top 10 list, but it's the first one. And uh it's from episode number 59, talking about the psychology of change. We're going to roll that for you here in just a moment. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. And we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields, you get immediate access to all the recordings, and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 Replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out, and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 100. We're here counting down the top 100 episodes of 2022, or the top 10 interviews, I should say, of 2022. And uh, our next guest or the next on our list is at number seven is Christine Serrano, uh, who is at the time she was a professor at Colorado State University. She has since moved on and is uh, kind of moving into the in the private sector. 
as we speak, but she was on the show uh, talking about a passion of hers and an interest in a research area of hers, which is the psychology of change. And we had her back on episode number 59, which is a really interesting conversation because she has a lot of research-based uh, sorts of observations and thoughts about change management and why organizations struggle with change and what makes change initiative successful. And so we had her on the show um, back then, and that's part of why I like having her on the show. And that's why it's in the top 10, in my opinion, is because hearing that different perspective and that focus on change management, I thought was really good. But what were your thoughts and uh, feedback from that that interview? Yeah, when I saw this one um, on your list from Dr. Serrano, I it was the first one I was like, oh, I should have chosen that one. Um, it was one of my favorites, um, for sure. And I, I think it's pretty remarkable that um, that Christina is a professor for MES systems and um, and then also layers in change management into the importance of understanding that human side, which that duality in higher education is kind of a unicorn. So just giving, you know, our audience a bit of background of like how incredible that is, you know, the importance of being able to educate computer system students around the human side of technology is pretty incredible. Um, and I, I think one of my favorite parts of her approach there is just the, the overall ownership and awareness of your own human psychology. So understanding kind of you as a person, you as an employee, what makes you kind of tick, what motivates you so that you can better understand how you integrate into more of a group or team environment. A lot of times we talk about organizational change as a unifier, as something that goes throughout the entire organization, but she talked about it on more of the individual level, which I thought was interesting and I had never really heard that take on it before. But it is so important, not only for going through a, a technology change or a business change in general, but also to be a, a, an effective leader, an effective team member, a manager. Those types of, of, of sensual awareness pieces are, are really important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it, uh, you mentioned a few things in there that I neglected to. One is that she is a doctor, PhD, so that, that's obviously important. But yeah, that human individual side of change is, is important. I think too often we get caught up in the, you know, the organization as a whole, which is important. You know, you, you need to manage change across the entire organization in terms of stating the purpose and the vision for the transformation, why you're going through the change, what it means to the organization, uh, what the expected impact is, all that stuff. But but really the more important part, in my opinion, is when you get into the individual uh, drivers of change. I mean, that's ultimately what's going to make or break a, a project is whether or not a collective group of individuals are accepting the change or if they're resisting it, that's going to determine the path you go down or the results you get. So that's a, a really good point. And uh, so I, I think uh, we both agree it's a great interview. So let's roll it. It's, it's uh, Christina, Dr. Christine Serrano talking about the psychology of change from episode number 59. Here's the clip. This is a really broad question that could go a million different directions. And I fully acknowledge it. It may not be fair as a first question or a first real question for you. Um, but I'll ask it anyway and see if we do maybe a flyover view or a summary. But when you think about the time you've spent in IT and the research you've done as, as in the world of academia, academia, um, mm -hmm. what what are some of the biggest takeaways or lessons that you have from, you know, the things you didn't know 20 years ago when you started doing this stuff 
until now? What are some of those biggest lessons learned or uh, takeaways from your research? Yeah. Um, so I'll, I, I'm a big picture thinker like you, so I think I might start more um, at the big picture level sure. uh, and, and then where it's brought me today. Um, and so, you know, I, I started my PhD in 2006. Um, in the very first year of my PhD program, you know, we have to learn a lot of fundamentals about research, about our discipline. Uh, and so, you know, my discipline being information systems. Um, and a lot of people confuse information systems with computer science or, you know, computer engineering and, and don't really understand the difference. And, and where I am right now, it's actually my department is computer information systems. So it makes it even more confusing. Um, but what was really clear, you know, in that first year of my PhD program is, is you know, understanding, of course, what is information systems as a discipline? What does it mean? And our discipline is, is essentially captures the combination of people, processes, and technologies, and how they all have to come together, work together to uh, manage information to achieve organizational goals. Um, and, you know, ideally shared goals, right, is <laughs> what we want. Um, still, uh, at that time in 2006, we, the, the field as a whole was a bit disrupted. Um, you know, around that time, it was after the dot-com bust and uh, there were declining enrollments, um, not just in information systems, but also computer science and other computing fields. Um, and so we were all kind of in this identity crisis, uh, really trying to understand, you know, how can we remain relevant and serve the needs of um, the future. Uh, so in my field, there were a, a slew of publications around that time, or they had come out a few years earlier when I had started the PhD program. So they were still fairly fresh. And it was kind of, you know, um, who are we? You know, what kind of what kind of things are we supposed to teach and publish? Uh, and it, the battle was really more of this holistic information systems. Um, you know, are we all of this? Because you know, isn't that more management? Isn't that psychology? Isn't it all these other disciplines? Uh, and so we did really hone in on the tech. You know, I think that's what really won the day um, in that feud about who are we as a as a field. And so subsequently, you know, every paper you submit to a journal that you, you know, about your research, there is this question, where's the IT artifact? You know, are you talking about IT at all? Um, because if not, you know, maybe desk reject, you know, we, we don't want to hear it. Um, and, and I get that, you know, I get that in terms of in a business college, we have to differentiate ourselves from management, from, you know, other disciplines. Um, my sense now, uh, all these years later, is it was a pretty big mistake um, for our field to take that turn because it's really in the holistic space of people, processes, and technology and how they have to work together synergistically um, in a really careful dance, <laughs> you know, almost like a marriage, you know. Um, that's where innovation really takes place. You know, mm -hmm. once you take the IT out of the people and the processes and try to look at it um, alone, 
you just you miss out on you know a lot of the things that your your firm is trying to do right when you when you're talking about these major organizational IT implementations it's it's not just about the IT in fact it's usually the, the IT is not the problem usually it's usually right. in the people and the processes and that space and unfortunately um, I do feel a lot of researchers who have been responsible for kind of you know researching this and teaching it and innovating in this space. Um, have done, you know, exactly what industry has done, and that's look at the tech, you know, kind of, and not look at the whole picture. Yeah, it's easy to become enamored by the technology and focus on bells and whistles and innovations in the pure tech space without looking at the people and process. Absolutely. I mean, we still will look at things like tech's impact on organizational performance and, you know, our outcome variables are still very relevant to a business. It's just, you know, we're not looking at our models holistically to account for a lot of the people and processes too, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. And that's a lot of what we want to talk about, especially the, the technology and people in particular. I think that's a lot of what we'll cover here today. Of course, processes fit into that as well. Um, but in speaking of that, I guess just to kind of shift gears and maybe dive into that a little bit more, um, Part of your research, I know, focuses on how IT impacts individual identities and cultures. Um, just what are some of your high-level observations or thoughts or learnings in that area in terms of how tech affects or, or transformation affects, we'll call it digital transformation affects individual and, um, identities and cultures and, and vice versa as well? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, when I first started to do research at, in the organizational space, I was really interested in organizational culture. Uh, and so I, I started a study, um, it's a longitudinal case study. This was actually looking at libraries um, it, because at the time uh, it was 2006, yeah, 2007, um, I had access to a particular case, a library that had been built and open uh, and it has no books, you know, it was intentionally designed to be a bookless electronic library, still a physical space, but it uh, looks very different when you walk into it. Um, and, and that actually meant everything. So we were looking at culture, uh, you know, in terms of how did the librarians adjust to this and, um, you know, what does it mean in terms of, you know, their culture as an organization in this bookless library? But what we actually found was, um, when I say we, I have one collaborator at the University of Georgia, uh, Dr. Marie Perdreau. Um, we found was that their identities, you know, it, within the culture space, identity really became a prominent theme uh, in, in, in their identity threats and how they responded to those identity threats. Um, so, you know, culture is very important, uh, but I think where my research has taken me is that within the culture space, identity is almost everything, you know, because it, 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 it deals with who we are as human beings, even in the workspace, you know, who, who are we as a librarian, you know, if I'm a librarian. Uh, and the threats to that, I found that, you know, we all respond to identity threats. We all have our, usually our default is some sort of defensive or protective type of response to start. And that's exactly what they did as well. Um, you know, they were really trying to uh, say, hey, we're still relevant in this space. You know, we're not gonna be one of these 
groups that get uh, sucked into de-skilling because of technology. You know, we want to make sure we're still relevant. Uh, but it, no matter what they did, they could not combat the just the misperceptions of the people they were serving. So it didn't matter how often they put up, say, read posters, for example, of you know celebrities reading books in the building. It didn't matter how often they had a portable bookmobile for checkout or you know all the things that they tried to do to say, hey, we're still librarians and this is a library, so please use it like a library instead of a computer lab. Um, it just didn't work. It didn't work and try to even, you know, change the desktops on the computers to be more like, hey, you're in a library and but their patrons still looked at them like um, directional assistants at the desk would <laughs> still ask, you know, where's the bathroom? Where's the stapler? Um, and these are people with master's degrees or higher. You know, I mean, they are they are very skilled um, in their expertise. Um, so what we found is, is, is that when the masses kind of, uh, when it becomes imbued more in the societal culture, you know, because this wasn't the only place where, you know, it's becoming digitized and, as a library and uh, you're now going to databases, right, to look at research. You're not pulling books and journals from the shelves and photocopying anymore. That's just not the behavior um, that, that, you know, the patrons are, are engaged in. Uh, so when that happens, there's really no stopping the train. You know, it doesn't matter what, as an organization, you try to do to say, hey, you know, we, we want to resist this or say, you know, it's still this old model or, you know. So what they had to do was essentially um, embrace it. You know, they just had to. They had to make it a part of who they are. Um, so they had to adapt their identity to uh, this new technological landscape, you know, because that's the only way to stay relevant. And, and even though this was a case study, a longitudinal case study with a library and librarians, I do think the lessons gleaned from that case study are generalizable. You know, uh, the way that consumers, the way that it's just all baked into our societal culture, uh, technological adoption, there's just, there's no stopping that train, really. Um, I think organizations just have to embrace it, have to respond to it, have to understand the employees that they onboard that are even you know, younger generation. I mean, it's different. There's a different culture. Yeah. Um, and so it, culture identity, it's all very much tied together. Okay, that was a clip with Christine, Dr. Christine Serrano, uh, talking about the psychology of change. This is back from episode number 59, and that's number seven on our list of the top 10 interviews of 2022. So when we come back, we're going to continue this whole thread of change management. Number six is coming up next. And it's not one person. It's actually a panel discussion uh, talking about organizational change management. This is back from episode number 81. So we're going to roll you that clip here when we come back from a quick break. But first, we'll take that break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or 
download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 100. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on audio podcast platforms as well as Google, LinkedIn. Uh, I'm sorry, not Google. I guess you could Google it if you want, but you can also just go to YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. And sure, go ahead and Google it too if you want. Um, but uh, we're going to roll our number six clip, our number six interview of 2022. And this is actually a panel discussion that we did with a few of our team members uh, back from episode number 81. And we just wanted to talk about organizational change best practices in general, uh, fairly broad and high level. So we don't go deep into tools or specific um, aspects of change, but we do talk quite a bit about the different, you know, the different approaches that can be taken, why change is so important, how change manifests itself throughout organizations, all that good stuff. So it's actually a good a good one to hear back to back with with Dr. Serrano's uh, that we just had at number seven. Um, but what were your thoughts on this panel discussion back from episode number 81, Kyler? Yeah, well, I always love when our change practitioners get on our live stream because you never have to worry about um, lack of things to talk about. Um, even to watch them work is pretty incredible. Um, they mentioned here just the overall, the art of listening if you go on to one of our, our third stage internal calls, you'll find that the project managers talk and the change managers listen. <laughs> and it's a, it's a very interesting dynamic um, to hear their ability to not only take that all in, but then to process it, communicate it, and showcase our clients where their opportunity is, which is a very vulnerable conversation as we kind of talked about. It's kind of weird to go into an organization and say, hey, here are all of your flaws, um, right? And it, it takes a, a level of trust for them to do that. And that's really what they are, is a trusted advisor um, that is completely independent and dedicated to the overall success of the client. But for them, understanding that change management truly is the one greatest failure point that they see within any organization, and it manifests in many different ways. That's why it's so important to have kind of that umbrella experience that they have within your advisor panel because they're able to say, hey, this, this might not be outward. This is what's happening here or this is what's happening there. Um, and to showcase those kind of hot spots of resistance or hot spots of just overall uncomfortability, anticipation, all of those different pieces uh, so that you can move forward with your technology implementation as opposed to failing and then having to back up, right, and re-understand what happened uh, within your organization. So they're, I mean, they're always great to have involved in here, not only our, our U.S.-based team, but also our international team um, in change and understanding cultural change. It's a, a really fascinating topic that they are truly experts in. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's a great point. And you you bring up another good point that I neglected to mention in, in setting up or queuing up this interview. And that uh, even though it's not, even though it's pretty broad and high level, uh, discussion around change management. It is a case study. So we're, we're in this discussion. We're focused on one particular client of ours. 
we don't mention them by name, but we dive into sort of what the problem statements are and uh, what we did to help and what we're doing to help the client overcome those problems. It's actually part of a, uh, we're in the midst of a two-year engagement with them. Uh, we just finished year one here in 2022, and in January, we're starting the next phase um, for the second year. And there's a lot of, you know, as we'll talk about in this, or as we do talk about in this clip, there's a lot of business process work that goes along with that uh, change management work. But um, great conversation here with with part of the team that is working on this particular project. Uh, another fun fact uh, for 2022, it just so happened that this was our, our largest client and our largest engagement um, as a company at third stage, and that's globally. So makes for an even interesting, more interesting conversation because of that. And uh, that's something that makes it memorable to me as well. And that's why I rated it here at number six on our list. So this is the organizational change case study panel discussion from episode number 81. So let's roll the clip here. I guess just to start out, and we can't, you know, obviously, hopefully the audience understands we can't share the client name or any sort of confidential information, but we can share a bit about the organization, some of the challenges and that sort of thing without mentioning them by name or without giving away who who the organization is. But without giving away who the organization is, Nate, um, tell us a little bit about the clients, what it is they do, what industry they're in, that sort of thing, as well as the scope of their their digital transformation, just to start us off. And then we'll we'll kind of get into some of the change management specific questions. Great. Yeah, thanks. Um, our, our client is a, a billion dollar plus uh, multinational chemical manufacturing organization, and they called us in in the middle of a um, the implementation of a tier one ERP platform. They um, have had uh, several technology initiatives that have been very successful, some that have been very challenging. Uh, we were called in specifically uh, for our change management expertise and to help guide them through uh, the, the change management initiative and to really put in place a structured change management program and initiative to help them not only with this technology uh, implementation, but down the road, post implementation, go live and post go live support. Okay, great. That's a good a good overview. And um, so, I guess just to start, um, again, coming at this from a change management and a, and a human side of change perspective, how big of an impact or change is this transformation in general having on the organization? And, and Cameron, let's start with you. I know you guys all have opinions on all these topics, but we'll, we'll start with you, Cameron. Uh. Well, it's a, I'd say that this organization is experiencing pretty large impact um, globally. It's uh, uh, it's a large solution. It's moving from an on-prem to cloud-based. There's a lot of difference in the way the system is structured and, and handles their current processes. So it's just very complex. There's a lot of moving pieces. And like like I said, global meaning you're you're working with different countries with different uh, compliance and, and regulatory requirements and needs, potentially different processes in to work and manage a project of that size uh, truly takes a strong governance structure from a project perspective in managing it. So it's 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 a significant change to this organization. And is that the sort of just out of curiosity, is that the that sort of project governance or the general governance that you're talking about? Is that something that's new to this organization or is that something they already had the competency and now they're just sort of building on that to to make the transformation more successful? I'd say it's a little of both. It's, it seems that they set up the governance structures typically for their projects, but I think mm -hmm. they've made a, a, a different focus on this one with having the change management lens. Um, uh, it, it, they've kind of usually been a technical driven company 
uh, and that kind of ties into the culture, right? It's, it's where they've been. And so when Nate alluded to some of the projects of successes they've had and some of the, the uh, we won't call them letdowns because they were successful, but as far as they completed them, but they were IT driven and they didn't have a business focus. So I think that's the key with the new governance structure, along with the fact that they've taken those past experiences and if, if realized the benefit of change management or change leadership, which I'm sure we'll get into a little more. Uh, and that's now a new component to this where we're working with both the technical and the business side. Got it. Okay. That, that makes total sense. So, so Nate and Mitch, anything you'd add to the mix as far as how big of a change or impact this has been on the organization? The one thing that I would add in there is, you know, coming from an environment where they have their legacy system that was completely customized to meet their needs to the out of the box type of model. Um, they're running into significant challenges in trying to fit what they've been doing for the last you know, 10, 12, 20 years into what they're doing today with an out of the box solution. So um, lots of processes that we need to be reviewing, evaluating what you're doing today and what you're trying to accomplish tomorrow. And, right. you know, the one thing the one thing I'll add and Cam hit on it a little bit, but I'll elaborate on it. And Eric, I think you can you could um, attest to this as well. We're, we're seeing so many folks and so many organizations that are interested in change management, change leadership initiatives, because traditionally IT projects, uh, platform imp implementations, any digital transformation has been driven and almost exclusively performed by the IT department. And, and there's our client has really seen some of the pitfalls and some of the challenges that have come out of that in the past. And this is really a chance for them to get the organization involved. And we're going to hit on this later down um, in, our, in our discussion, I'm sure. But it's it's really trying to get people to say, you know, this is this is something we need your input and we need you to be involved. And you can't just say, lift and shift and we'll train you how to use this platform you need to be involved in setting this up and you need to be involved in the change from the beginning yeah yeah great great point so so to address some of these challenges that you guys have mentioned as far as the impact or the change to the organization what you know what if we just sort of back up or start at the highest level here and, and work our way down into the details you know what what's the general change strategy in particular for this for this digital transformation you know what, what sort of approach are we taking or how did we maybe how do we get started you know that might be a good place to start what, what are your thoughts on that mitch yeah so really we got started and our whole goal when we first engaged with the client was to just understand where they're at and our change management strategy has really been to meet the client where they're at and to help to identify any any pitfalls that we're seeing on where they're going um, and to make the, the deliverables that we're putting in front of them relevant. Um, you know, we, we talked with some of their experience. I mean, they're, they're a large company. They've worked with, you know, big four and basically any consultancy out there. And what's been different about us and our strategy has been we're not shoving a methodology down their throat. We are really trying to understand them, navigate their people. We're trying to navigate their structures um, and we're trying to meet them where they are and, and to just help them along the way. Yeah, great point. I think a lot of a lot of organizations and project teams forget that or just intentionally uh, ignore where they're at. You know, they they sort of focus on 
let's get to the future state. We know we're going to change our culture. We know we're going to change our way of doing business, which is partially true, but you have to understand where you're starting from in order to, to get there. So that's a really good, good observation or point. Um, how about, uh, Cam or, or Nate, anything to add in terms of the general, you know, sort of the general change strategy in addition to meeting the client where they are today and, and helping them start to migrate to where they're headed? Nate, want to go first? Yeah, you know, and I'll, I'll just say that that I think, um, you know, I think to elaborate with what Mitch said is is change management. It, you you have a, a structure to every project, and and I always go back to the difference with when you go to a platform implementation. It's a very set standard. You do this, you do this, you do this. It's very linear. The the steps are really well known. Change management's a little bit different. So you. You come in with a structure, you know where you are, you know what steps you need to take, and you know the the, the programs that you need to implement. But it, it's, it's a constantly changing and it's constantly shifting to the needs of the client and to the strengths and to the really the comfort level of the client. So while we come into a project like the one we're on now, we, we know, like I would say, I'd use the analogy of building a house. We know the steps you need to take to build a house but you're going to, going to be working with the client throughout the project to adjust the intricacies of what you're doing to meet what their needs are. So it's not just a one size fits all solution. Yeah, maybe you know maybe one of you could talk just real quickly about um, you know how we go about ascertaining some of these strengths and weaknesses of a of a current situation and helping to find the change strategy in in the form of that organizational readiness assessment. Could one of you maybe just sort of uh, elaborate on that step in our process a little bit? You know, how do, how do we, how do we get that foundation or that, um, that clear strategy and plan based on that spirit of meeting the client where they are today, but also understanding where they're headed in the future? Could one of you maybe unpack that or just describe at a high level what that organizational readiness assessment is and, and how that fits into what you're, you're talking about here? Yeah, I'd be happy to take that one. Just things that we do in in an assessment like this is to try and um, bucket observations into themes. Um, and by taking these themes and applying uh, a broad strategy to a theme, we're able to you know, take a, a pretty broad abstract topic and turn it in. Um, when we're talking with our client, we often try to identify things such as resistance, but there's multiple types of resistance. There's you know intentional and unintentional. And you tackle those things differently based on whether or not um, someone is resisting the change because they just don't like the product at all, they weren't included, or maybe it's unintentional being a detractor and we need to help to guide them along. And, and it's a change in approach based on you know where each one of those changes falls into those buckets of themes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and generally we, you know, we, we get to those themes or we conclude those, those themes based on sort of a two prong change readiness assessment where we go in and we do online anonymous surveys, but we also do qualitative focus groups. And then during that uh, data gathering, quantitative and qualitative data gathering, and we use that input to then analyze, to understand what are the nuances of this particular organization compared to others that we work with and what are the pitfalls that this organization is going to face and ultimately what is the most effective change strategy and plan that we can tailor for this particular situation so i think that you know that upfront assessment piece really gets to the heart of what you guys are saying which is so important which is to 
sort of frame this or to create a strategy and plan that is not one size fits all, but is more specific to a client's particular situation. Okay, great conversation with third stage team members talking about a change management case study that is from episode number 81. If you want to go back and listen to the whole thing, uh, it's, a, it's a great conversation. We go into a lot more uh, detail and, and talk about a lot more uh, topics beyond what you just heard there. So now we're getting to the uh, the top half of our list. We've, we've covered six through 10. Uh, we've gotten to change management. We've talked about technology type stuff. We've talked about supply chain management. Uh, our number five guests and our number five interview is on the topic of project management best practices. This is back from episode number 88, very dynamic speaker, a dynamic guest, uh, very well-known guest uh, in the project management space. So we're gonna get to that number five interview when we come back from a quick break, but first we'll take that break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 100. We're counting down the top 10 interviews of 2022 from this podcast. And we're up to number five here. Uh, but before we jump into number five, uh, some things to, to note. Uh, we've, we've already started scheduling our, our guests for next year. So episodes number 101 on, uh, we've got guests lined up and uh, we've got some exciting guests and we're trying to outdo ourselves. We're hoping that we have such great guests in 2023 that these 2022 guests will pale in comparison. Nothing against these guests. It's just we want to keep getting better and better and having uh, better guests, in some cases, repeat guests. And we find sometimes when we have someone on for a second time, they're even better the second time because they, you know, there's a comfort built and we can go in a bunch of different directions based on the first conversation. Uh, but some of the uh, guests we have coming up uh, just in, in January episodes um, include... Uh, We'll have a guest on that's going to talk about uh, blockchain and Web 3.0. Uh, we're actually going to have the CEO of IFS Software on the show, which I'm really excited for. So he will be only our our third third episode where we've actually had someone from a software vendor. But we'll have uh, Darren Roos from from IFS IFS Software. We'll have Brad Feeks back on the show. Uh, speaking of repeat guests, uh, he's been on the show a couple times now. But he's going to be talking about uh, on the show to talk with us about best of breed versus single enterprise technology options. Um, so that'll be a great conversation. Those are just a few examples of some of the guests that we're lining up here in the coming weeks. So be sure to check out new episodes every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So we're up to number five here. And uh, this is someone that I would definitely like to have back on the show. And we're actually trying to coordinate plans to have her back on the show. But we had her for the first time back in episode number 88. It's Adriana Girdler. 
who was on talking about project management best practices. And if you don't know Adriana, she's got a great YouTube channel. Um, she's actually one that I, I sort of look up to uh, on YouTube just because she has such a big following. She's got about, I, th I think I have a decent following, but she's got about double the, the following that I do. And uh, all of her videos are really good. She's a very good speaker, very crisp to the point, uh, no, no BS sort of speaker. And uh, you can check out her YouTube channel. Obviously on, on YouTube, you can look up uh, Adriana Girdler. Um, she just hit, I think, 100,000 subscribers not too long ago. So she hit a big milestone there. So we're, so this is uh, from episode number 88. What were some of your uh, observations from that interview, Kyler, or some of the things you liked the most? Well, I know if she just heard me say that project managers talk instead of listen, she would be upset. So I'm so sorry, Adriana, for saying that. Um, no, in, in all seriousness, she, she her ability to um, create this this universal perspective around everyone as a project manager, I think is such a healthy outlook in not only a technology or ERP implementation, um, but also just in, in how you approach your job in general. And I think that's why she makes such a great impact is she has the ability to really explain that everyone is a project manager. And I find myself actually looking to her content for ideas about how to better do things like time management, meeting management, um, and all of those those really important skills that a successful project manager must have. Is it really the mecca, the mission control of the overall project that has to manage a variety of different vendor agendas, also with the understanding of the internal agenda too. It's very difficult to go into an organization and be an acting and impactful project manager as an outside party. And, you know, she's able to do that. That's something obviously we do here at third stage too. Uh, but I think her overall interview is one I would like to slow down and listen to it piece by piece because there are so many tactical nuggets and insights in there that seem very simple on the outward side, but they actually could create for a much more productive and efficient organization if everyone you know, had sort of a value statement that rolled up to kind of what she outlined in the importance of project management in there. And that's, I again, um, that's one of the things that we see a lot of times lacking within digital transformation projects is just an independent and agnostic project manager that not only has the know-how of, of the system, but also the wherewithal of experience too is so important. Um, so that's one thing, you know, we obviously do that a lot for our clients, especially after we take them through an, a successful evaluation process uh, and all those different things. But if you don't have a really solid project manager or project management team or com um, competencies internally, it'll be very, very difficult to achieve a successful digital transformation project. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's uh, project management is one of those I don't want to say it's a lost art, but I think it's underrated is, is crazy as that sounds. I think a lot of times people think, well, you know, so-and-so Kyler is a good, she understands technology really well. She's really good at configuring or developing software. So therefore she'll probably be a good project manager. You get elevated into a project management role. Maybe you get some training, maybe you don't. Um, and a lot of times it's just sort of like you're, you're gunslinging, shooting from the hip. And that's unfortunately the project management style of a lot of technology consultants and a lot of implementation partners, even big system integrators, it's uh, you're sort of shooting from the hip and you're, you're leading with your technology knowledge versus 
PMP or, or project management sorts of uh, discipline that they are important to have the right controls and governance in place. So, uh, and by the way, uh, you also triggered another thought or something I forgot to mention, which is that Adriana actually has an online course that she makes available as well. In addition to her YouTube channel, it's called uh, Slay Project Management. And in that episode, uh, number 88, if you're interested, we, she actually gives a, a promo code to get a discount on that. But you can, you can go check out slayprojectmanagement.com in the meantime, check out our training. And if you want the promo code, go back to episode number 88, listen to it. It might be in the chat. Uh, from the from the episode as well, depending on where you're listening or watching. But let's roll the clip of Adriana Girdler talking about project management best practices from episode number 88, number five on our list of top 10 interviews of 2022. What I love about your background and your view of project management just from watching your videos is it, A, the focus on efficiency as you as you describe in your title, but you also mentioned process improvement and you, you seem to have a pretty complete view of not just the project management discipline, but how it ties into other aspects of a business and strategy and, and all that sort of stuff. And that's some of the stuff that you and I talked about as we were prepping for this, this conversation, but maybe to start, um, what, what about, um, just starting, starting with the question of what, why is project management so important, particularly to a digital or business transformation, any sort of change initiative? Why, why is project management so important? We'll start with the basics there. For sure. So let's first define projects, because I think that becomes really, really important because we don't realize how many projects we actually run. And that's the problem. So a project has a definitive start and end date. That's really, really important. It has a deliverable at the end. You usually have a series of tasks associated with it. And most of the time you pull on other subject matter experts to help you execute on that. That's a definition of a project. Now, interestingly enough, if you take that definition, we have a lot of initiatives that we're given that fall under that definition as well. So whether that's a digital transformation initiative, whether that's your boss giving you, hey, we have this new strategy, I need you to implement it. Based on that definition, that's a project. Now, what happens is when we think of projects, we think of these very large initiatives that, of course, you need project management around it. And the answer is yes, of course you do. But what people don't realize is that there's a lot of smaller initiatives, smaller type projects that also need the framework of project management. And that's why project management is so important because it doesn't matter the industry you're in, what you do, you're always going to have an initiative or a project that has a start and an end. You have to move it forward in order to deliver on a goal. And if you want to do that well, then there's a framework and a different hat you have to put on in order to be successful. Right. How did you, just out of curiosity, how did you, uh, fall into the realm of project management and in this focus and dedication to project management how did how did that come to well it's interesting it's it's thank you it's an interesting um question because when i first started off in my career i was in sales and i did tons of projects without realizing it i didn't do them well (laughs) okay at all at all because i was wondering why isn't this working because you're not thinking in the right mindsets when i went back to school for engineering engineering is a very it's just a profession that falls into projects naturally because everything you do is a project. You have to create, you have to develop. And so everything's a project. Um, and as a result of that, uh, I just naturally fell into those roles. I did process engineering. I did a lot of experimentation. When I went into pharmaceutical, that was when I got into the Lean Six Sigma type roles, which again, are all projects. Um, and I just fell into it. And then I got my PMP and became a professional, uh, a project management professional, um, just to, you know, give credence to the work that I was doing. So I, I fell into it from 
the chosen profession that I took of mechanical engineering. However, I was doing projects my whole professional career without realizing it in the beginning. So it was only through, um, because I'm also a Lean Six Sigma master black belt um, specialist as well, um, I'm always looking for efficiencies. So with my own projects is I do efficiencies and that's kind of how it all unfolded and I got to where I am today because my own clients and my consulting firm had always asked me, oh my God, you run projects like so well, can you teach our people? And that's kind of what kind of spurred me creating my own online uh, project management course because of that, just the requests that I get. So yeah, that's, right. that's my journey in project management. It is every single person on this uh, live stream does projects, whether you realize it or not. Right. And so you yeah. kind of was born out of necessity. You didn't necessarily, as a kid, I think oh, project manager. It. Right. It fell, it fell in my lap. And interestingly enough, that's how most project managers become a project manager, <laughs> right. is it falls in your lap. You actually have a different profession and you kind of fall into it. Yes. Can you do schooling for project management? Listen, the best project management, um, activity out there is experience. And you can do that in any organization and role that you're in, because don't forget there's initiatives. You can just take principles and foundations and you can apply them. And then the more and the more you do well with them, they start giving you more and more projects or initiatives, right? Uh, so right. that's how you fall into that role. And digital transformation, by the way, has tons of projects. Yes. Tons. Every no. single initiative actually is a project. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, I, I didn't mention this or ask you this in your introduction or your background, but m now might be a good time to t uh, touch on it since you, you reminded me. Tell us about this course that you um, that you have, this online course, and you also have a uh, a promo code that you're offering to our listeners here today. So I want to uh, maybe maybe you could yeah. just verbalize that and we'll drop it in the chat as well so everyone has sure. a link. Yeah, so um, I have a practical online project management course, which basically I've taken project management, streamlined it, because let's be honest, 80% of projects only need some core foundational items. There's tons of project management. And as a project manager, if you're doing large global scale, major projects, yes, you need a whole bunch of other tools that were taught. However, for most people, you don't. So over the years, I've streamlined it. I've used my efficiencies. I've taken the best of the best. And here's what you need to be successful. In fact, this is what I do with my own clients that I get complimented on all the time. So I made Slay Project Management. It's an online course. I believe the chat, you're going to put the link in the chat. And yeah, and for anybody here who's interested, I'm, I have a $50 off coupon for you just because you're here out of my appreciation and gratitude. Yeah, which is an awesome win-win. We get, we get to Absolutely. have you- and you're giving us fifty dollars towards your course. Um, and actually, if you look in the chat, um, check for from either Kyler and or Third Stage Consulting. There's a link uh, to the to the course as well as the promo code in the chat yeah. here for, on whichever platform you're watching. So be sure to check that out. Take um, off fifty is the coupon code. Take off fifty, and yeah, and that's and your uh, now your YouTube channel is called uh, or you, you use that phrase slay project management that's sort of your your tagline it seems to be yeah slay slay your project and excel in your career so i have a project a youtube channel check it out tons of information uh on projects but not just about how to do things so it's really an educational channel i try to keep things in short snippets because there's a lot of individuals out there who just need some guidance and direction so that's and i'm almost at 100k so if any of you want to subscribe i would be so grateful <laughs> trying to get over that hump i want that silver platform. <laughs> right. But yeah, it's it's all about uh, project management. There is a whole bunch of other career related um, advice in there, too, because don't forget, projects 
are in the professional world and there's a lot of things in our projects that ex that go outside of the realm of ex of executing on a task it's the communication it's how do we have bring engagement how do we run efficient meetings because all of that is related to project management so it's really looking holistically at how can you do really well in your professional world and how can you use tools and techniques in order to help you to be really successful and really to make your life easy yeah yeah and you you mentioned this dynamic of your upbringing in your career and how you sort of fell into project management out of necessity yeah. and it wasn't something you necessarily planned to do and that's something we see a lot with our with our clients too you know they're they're being asked to lead these big global transformations but they haven't necessarily managed a project or been formally trained in project management before so i wanted to ask this question on behalf of one of our audience members here from kyler who's actually our, our podcast co-host um, who asked, well said, what are some of the core skills needed to make a project manager successful? So in other words, if I'm, if I get a project handed to me, whether I like it or not, I've been asked to lead this initiative yeah. and I want to lead this initiative. What are some of the, the key skills or some of those core skills that you would recommend that you, you sharpen? Yeah. So I, the first and foremost, and I say this all on my YouTube channel, communication is critical. Um, I think a lot of project leads, managers, individuals don't understand it. I don't care if you say things once, you have to say it over and over. Your communication channel is what makes and breaks a project. There's a whole bunch of other skill sets you need too, but if you don't have really good communication, then that has huge ramifications. So that communication is getting clarity, that communication is getting confirmation of understanding, that communication is providing updates to key stakeholders, that communication is ensuring that you and your project team are constantly in sync so that when risks pop up, you can start addressing them right away. So communication is probably the most fundamental skill set. Now, what's interesting and kind of not even ironic, but just interesting, that's probably a skill set for any profession is communication. Mm -hmm. And it's sorely lacking. I find people get so busy and wrapped up in what they're doing that they drop communication. But with projects, it's even more so. Why? You have a short window to be successful. I don't have a length of time. I don't have over a period of time where it's okay and, oh, I didn't get to you. No, if I don't get to you, it could have major ramifications on the activities that you're trying to do. So communication is key. Uh, documentation is the second one. You probably hear that all the time. Paper pushers, paper pushers. But I promise you, you do need your paper documentation and you do have to do a good job in ensuring that you capture everything and you document because what happens with short sprints of activities is if things fall through the cracks and you have major things that fall through the cracks, if you don't have proper documentation to show you've done your due diligence, the fingers start pointing at you. Um, and so that's something that becomes really important. But not only that, if people promise you stuff, you need to go back to the documentation. But documentation also provides clarity. What people don't realize is really good documentation. If I hand that off to my team, they should be able to off, go off and run and start doing their tasks without me having to micromanage them. So really good. And there's tons of types of documentation that, 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 that you can do. Um, and then really good meeting management, which is really interesting. And again, all of this is transferable to any activity you do. But think about it. In projects, how do we get together with people, particularly virtually? And we have global projects or we have global teams. What do we do? A meeting. A lot of people do not know how to run a meeting, let alone run an effective and efficient meeting in order to get answers to move things forward. How many times have you gotten out of a meeting and you have no idea what you're supposed to do? Right. Or you think, or you, think you know what you're supposed to do, but you don't have a due date. Right. <laughs> Even worse. Right. So that's why that all comes, it's all comes together. Do you need 
you know, uh, those are the top three. Are there more? Absolutely. There's more. Absolutely. There's more, but those are the top three. I would say if you're going to get into a great communication, really good documentation with your organization and really good meeting management. If you understand those, that is going to help you really soar as a project manager. It's fundamental. Obviously there's other stuff as well. It's not just those three, but those are definitely the three I would call out because they're sorely lacking. I see it all the time right. in any role. Yeah. And it, it seems like, um, you know, a lot of what you're talking about is relevant, whether you're um, a consultant or service provider that needs to manage projects on behalf of your clients, or if you're an internal stakeholder at a company that's going through a transformation. But one thing I've noticed, I'd be curious to see what you think of this, is that I've noticed that with a lot of our clients, there's a mentality that, you know, the stuff you're talking about, Adriana, is great, but we're going to hire the experts to do the project management. We're going to bring in an outside project manager to manage this initiative for us. And so I kind of get what you're talking about, but I'm, I'm going to defer to the the third party provider. Is this is this a skill set that you would recommend for an internal team, even if you're not a consultant or even if you're not a service provider that's that's helping with it with the transformation? Absolutely. Are you kidding? Absolutely. Because don't forget a lot of a lot of times you have a project manager, don't forget, who's looking at the macro view of everything. And there's multiple streams within that project, okay? Particularly digital transformation. It's not just one person executing the project and a project manager overseeing that person. You probably have software developers, you have your marketers, you have your trainers, you have uh, operations, like you have all these streams with different individuals. Those individuals who are on your project who've been chosen are not the ones who are solely going to execute the tasks. You may have a representative like a manager who's on your project who's going to pass those tasks off to other people. What I just said flows through the hierarchy, flows through from a project manager all the way to the core team members and to the other individuals who may not be on the core team but have to execute on some of those tasks, whether that's an internal person or an external hired individual as well. So there is this flow that needs to have happen and expectations that really need to be set up in a proper way. Sometimes people think of a project manager as a task, tactical taskmaster. That's not the case. It's actually a strategic role. And I think that gets missed. I'm constantly strategizing where we need to go, how we need to do it. Yeah, there's a tactical element to it, but I got my tools and techniques that I put that out. I'm all about strategy. I'm constantly saying to my clients, yes, I know I'm a consultant saying to my clients, but even when I was in the role of an employee to my manager, by the way, what you want here is not going to work. We have to do change control, blah, blah, blah. I was looking at it from strategic uh, perspective. I wasn't being told here, you have to do this. I would look at it and understand that bigger picture because I'm in the eye of the storm. Right? Right. There's this whirlwind. And I need to tell those particularly outside external steering committee members, senior executives, managers who don't understand it, but I want to scope creep or gold plate items. Like, no, you can't have that. And if you're, and if you're going to change something, we got to look at scope, time and budget. Let's look at our priority matrix and let's understand how we're going to do that. And there becomes a negotiation that gets associated with it. And that's something that I find a lot of leads and junior people or those who don't have experience or don't have the right tools or techniques start to just think, oh, I have to do this. I'm a taskmaster. I'm a tactical person that just executes what I'm told. The answer is no, no, you're not. You're a strategic individual that needs to ensure from a high level perspective, the deliverable of this project or initiative. So how are you going to do that? And sometimes I promise you, those that are not in it daily don't understand the nuances. It's your job as a project manager to educate people on those nuances so you can get the right decisions done to be successful. Right, right. 
So that's great. And, and so in addition to this um, fine tuning the understanding or, or fine tuning what it means to be a good project manager, you're, what you're saying is it's a strategic role, not a tactical role. Um, so that's sort of a, a misconception about project management. What, what are some of the other common misconceptions about project management in general? Um, anyone can project manage. It's no, it's, it's, it's a big misconception. It's kind of like, well, I'm a software developer. I guess anyone can create a software. You know, there's an education. Oh, I'm a doctor. I guess I guess anybody can be a doctor, right? Okay. So, you know, I think what, and like, obviously I'm doing extreme. Right, right. Life or death. <laughs> right. I'm doing extreme comparisons to kind of bring about the point. Project management is a distinct skill set. And you really need, as I said, there's a different hat you put on. It's a different perspective. You actually look at it from a strategic managerial role because it's a project manager. So you're guiding a group of people in order to get things done. That Not everybody can do that. Not everyone can be a manager. So not everybody can be a project manager. And I think it's like that for a lot of roles. Not any everybody can just be anything. you got to look at the right skill set. Um, and that is, first of all, do they have great organization? Are they able to, you know, herd cats? Like how many times have we been told that herding? Can they herd? Can they, And how do you convince people who don't report into you directly, but have a manager who's and everything they do is tied to their bonuses and stuff like that. If you have that, then start doing what you're asking them to do. And for them to be committed to your project when they don't report directly into you, that's a skill set. Right. And I have to say, you know, I get, I have people who don't report into me who are not even, I'm, I'm a consultant. And yet they will jump whenever I say, hey guys, we have to do this, blah, 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 blah. Why? Because I support them. And I'm actually giving them what they need in order to be successful and they get it. So they're like, oh my God, yeah, Adrian, you need that because they know it's real. They know it's not fabricated. It's not something I'm pulling out of the air to fill my time. When I look and do everything, it has purpose and I've set it all up and they know from day one what to expect. That really makes an amazing project manager. Right, right. That's, that's great. And so you're kind of covering what the skills required are, the competencies required, as well as what the misconceptions about those, those skills and competencies are. Absolutely. Okay, that was Adriana Girdler talking about project management best practices from episode number 88. Great conversation. We enjoyed having her on there. And we are going to... Get up to number four after a quick break. Number four is another person talking about change management. Um, my favorite topic personally. Um, so of course it's going to be pretty change management heavy. I think this is probably the third interview I want to say that's related to change management, but I would argue this is the best one related to change management. Uh, it's a guest that's uh, actually really well known in the change space. Uh, he'll be on talking about the future of change management. This is back from episode number 55. I'll tell you who it is after you take a quick break or after we take a quick break on Transformation Ground Control. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. 
This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 100. We're counting down the top 10 interviews of 2022, and we're up to number four. And number four is another guest that uh, I was excited to have on for the first time in 2022. This is uh, Tim Creasy, who is the Chief Innovation Officer of ProSci. And ProSci, if you don't know, is a change management training and certification firm. It's, it's sort of the gold standard, or probably the best known training course for change management practitioners. Um in the world. So uh, we thought we'd have Tim on the show because he's a, he's a thought leader in the space, not only because he works at ProSci and he develops a lot of their, their training materials, but he's also sort of a, a, the face of ProSci to, you know, within social media and YouTube and all that stuff. So great to have him on the show. Um, so I enjoyed the conversation from episode number 55, but what were your uh, thoughts about this one? I know it was, this was one that was also in your uh, top three as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm a huge fan of of Tim and just the overall thought leadership he puts out there. Um, and I always love his personalization approach of explaining things in simplistic terms, if you will. But it really is a fundamental need. Um, for example, yeah, he's probably the one metaphor that I really remember. And it's probably because I have young kids, his kids age. But his splash pad reference, you know, we're big splash pad people too. And so you talked about how the community built the splash pad. And unfortunately, because of, of something that wasn't considered uh, during the construction, the splash pad became really dangerous and unusual. And, you know, that always really sat with me because we too have a splash pad that for some reason that I can't wrap my mind around, if you go up to the splash pad, you can open a gate and you're on like a rock cliff. That's like a 10, 12 foot drop. And that piece of it, as, as silly as it sounds, obviously that was not considered in the construction of a child's play structure uh, and the overall risks of what can be associated when you don't map out a business strategy. And though that sounds silly because, you know, it's a child's play structure, but that is really the fundamental issue when it comes to digital transformation. It's just the overall phase zero work that needs to go into understanding each piece or place of impact and mitigating those risks associated with the project so you don't get to that restage, rework, redo, um, and and use valuable budget and resources, especially if you're a small to mid-sized organization. That can really mean bankruptcy. You know, it's a it's a high stakes situation. And I think he does such a good job of explaining those things. I also, you know, obviously a huge Marvel fan here in the Cheatham household when he talked about um, Thanos and culture. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I think he's just speaking my language over there. Um, but so important to consider that that culture is not a good or a bad thing. It is an assessment of the current state of the organization. It can create a lot of toxic and bad, inefficient behaviors or experiences on the employee side. But treating culture as something that needs to be evaluated, just like productivity, just like your manufacturing floor, all of those other pieces 
is really important to understanding your overall readiness or your ability and capacity as an organization to go through a large change. Can you sustain it? Do you have that muscle when it comes to being able to have a community that embraces digital change as opposed to is scared of it? So obviously really great interview. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, he's got a really nice presentation style and a way, a way of articulating some complex change concepts pretty simply. And even that, just that re concept, you know, the, the two most expensive letters are R and E, you know, re rework, re-implementation, whatever it is. And it's true. You know, if you, you, so many organizations focus on wanting to optimize their implementation cost of whatever the change initiative it is, that they don't think about, well, what's the downside if I, if I err or if I overshoot on optimizing cost during implementation where I cut corners and I'm too aggressive and it disrupts the business and creates a lot of morale issues and customer facing issues later on, what, what does that cost? And that cost is usually a lot more than any money you could possibly save during an implementation. So I, I think he does a nice job of framing that, but rather than us uh, paraphrasing him, we'll, we'll hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. And, and uh, this is Tim Creasy talking about the future of change management back from episode number 55. Um, so I guess, you know, maybe just to start, um, you know, when you when you look at the ProSci program and, and you guys deal with these organizations all over the world, um, and, and by the way, before I get into this question, and this relates to a, a comment here that's on uh, LinkedIn, um, you guys are a global, you offer this on a global scale, right? As far as the training, um, we've got a comment here that ProSci needs to step into Africa, but I, I believe you can get certified from Africa. Can you, can you not? Yeah, ProSci has, uh, again, uh, humble beginnings, right? In a small warehouse in Northern Colorado uh, is kind of where I started. We now have a physical footprint uh, in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the Caribbean, uh, Latin America, and Spain and Portugal. Uh, But there is an affiliate network around the entire globe where you can access ProSci training programs. So within Africa, we have several partners uh, and if you Google ProSci Global Partner Network, uh, you'll track down information about uh, Cedar and uh, and Change, uh, our friends that are down that way. Great, great. So I guess just to jump into here um, about you know the the problem statement that that you guys are trying to solve with with ProSci, and that is that the change is hard in general. Or if it, if this was easy, you and I probably wouldn't be in business, quite frankly. You and I would probably be doing, you'd be in economics and I don't know what I'd be doing, but it wouldn't be this probably. So so change is hard. Organizations struggle with it. Why, why is that? You guys, you've seen so many organizations, you've certified so many people that are thirsting for, for learning about change, but why is it such a difficult discipline? Well, I think it gets back to that notion. And I've been talking about the two sides of the change coin, right? That there's a technical side of every change where we design, develop, and deliver a solution that meets the need, the issue, the opportunity in front of us. You do a lot of work with your clients doing ERPs, right? That's one flavor of technical solution. CRMs would be electronic health records in a hospital, merger, acquisition. Even a new value system is a technical side of a change, right? Hmm. The people side of the change is how do we get people to embrace, adopt, and use whatever that solution is. And although in this change discipline, if you've been a practitioner and you hear it called the soft side of change, you know, it just makes your skin crawl, right? Um, Because I think the reason it's hard, Eric, is that this is the harder side of change. The technical side of change can be incredibly complex. Merging two big organizations, absolutely. There's technical complexity in terms of pulling this financial systems together, branding, blah, blah, blah. The real hard side of the change is getting people to step into this new way of working. 
It's mm. helping individuals navigate, step out of where they are today, step through whatever that transition, the liminal movement is going to be, and step into um, that new way of being. And so I, I think the reason it's hard is because the people side of change is the harder side of change. Now, historically, in a value system where your employees were incented for just you know, asking how high when you told them to jump, you know, predictability, consistent consistency, that was the value system historically. Um, change was easier then because the values aligned with what asking somebody to do something different. But new value systems over the last 20 years, the emergence of, you know, the, the interaction economy out of the service and knowledge economy, uh, these things have all amplified the people side of change as something that we cannot just leave up to giving the right uh, commands, but it's really around helping people navigate uh, navigate that journey. And I know we're going to end up talking about the pandemic too, but the pandemic just amplified. It made the people side of change impossible to ignore. If you were one of those organizations or projects that did ignore it and leave the people side of chance, change to chance, you know, historically. Yeah. Now, because we have a global audience, I, it might be worth asking, you know, a lot of those dynamics you just described, as far as the difficulty of changing and, and um, you know, the, the fact that in the past, maybe you could say jump and people just say how high and that's not so much the case in today's uh, organizational cultures. Do you see differences in different parts of the world or just differing organizational cultures and how these pro-sci concepts are applied or how they navigate change in general or, or how does that affect you know, either a global culture and or an organizational culture, how does that affect, you know, your your change journey? Yeah, I think you're spot on because I think culture is critically important. Um, I do get a little bit provocative here. I'll say that uh, culture is never the villain when a change fails and it's never the hero when a change succeeds. Uh, we're big, big Marvel fans at our house, right? So uh, culture is neither Thanos nor, nor Captain America. Um, Culture is, it, it's the water in which we're swimming. Uh, and so I think great change practitioners, it's their job to understand, adapt and adjust to the culture into which they're bringing to life this particular change. So I guess kind of that's my first bent. I do think culture, certainly we get geographic variation in culture, but inside of organizations, we also get tremendous variation of culture. Um, just because of the, you know, the values, behaviors, beliefs. We unpacked this with research. You know, this is kind of an interesting full circle notion of, of kind of the story of ProSci where we have a, a, an attunement to the market, uh, a neat, an, an understanding that change agents would like to better understand the culture they're stepping into and how it impacts the change journey they're about to attempt to navigate. And so we, looked at a number of the different uh, studies, the work that was done on organizational cultures and came up with six cultural dimensions that impact how change comes to life. Because um, my other beef on the culture equation is that any of this kind of value laden, like good, good culture, bad culture, uh, culture is. And if it's not aligned with what you're trying to achieve as an organization, then you need to go about nudging the culture. It, it But it's, it, you know, so that's, I hate the good, the good, bad stuff kind of drives me crazy. So instead we went spectrums because changes kind of come to life different, right? So you take the first one to be, uh, let's say uh, uncertainty avoidance as a spectrum. Some organizations have a very low uncertainty avoidance, a high tolerance of ambiguity. Others have a, uh, the flip side, right? 
neither is good nor bad, but they impact how change comes to life. And so we built a body of research that's contained in the ProSci, you know, body of knowledge that says for each of these six cultural dimensions, individualism, collectivism, what are the challenges of bringing to life change in an individualistic culture? And what are the adaptations you need to make as a change practitioner? Hmm. What about for a collective culture, right? Uh, power distance. Is the organization this high or this high in terms of the orientation of where people think they need to get permission? Um, neither good nor bad, but this organization requires different change tactics than this organization. And yeah. so that's what we've built out in the research is this whole set of for each of these dimensions, what are the challenges and adaptations you would make depending on where you live in that uh, in that cultural phenomenon? Culture is going to be really fascinating going forward, I think, because, you know, I've spoke a lot in the last couple of years about the involuntary digital transformation. Mm -hmm. that, that's what happened in March of 2020, right? For all the talk of all the executives of all the clients you help, right, about uh, digital transformation leading up to March 2020. Uh, they were mostly enamored with the technological revolution. Uh, and then all of a sudden we saw the digital transformation happen during this instantaneous work from home experiment. Um, the cultural transformation that organizations have in front of them cannot be allowed to be involuntary, right? We, we need to make sure that we step out in front of shaping the organizations that we want to, to live in and be part of as organizations going forward. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it creates that thing that change initiatives oftentimes historically struggled with, which is that burning platform for change. Like, why do I, if I'm an employee working for you, Tim, why do I need to change? I mean, why do we need to change? Why are you doing this to me? You know, that, that sort of thing. And it sort of takes that conversation off the table and makes it a little less personal and more like this is, we're all kind of in this together and we're all trying to figure out how to, how to navigate this new post pandemic world. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, just a, a uh, just a couple of comments here. One that's sort of relevant to what we were just talking about, and that is from uh, Malcolm on LinkedIn. Um, so his comment here is that uh, many companies will happily spend money on consultancy and technology. And there's a there's part two here, um, but not on education. Why and training? How? Um, so I guess that begs a question, or maybe I'll sort of spin that into a question that it triggered is. So companies are spending all this money on technology because they have to, or, you know, it's that involuntary transformation that you're talking about. Um, they spend all this money, in many cases, tens of millions of dollars for, for a larger organization, maybe even more for a really big one. So, uh, but they're not spending that, a lot of them are not spending adequate time and money on the education and the, the overall change management. What, it, it sort of goes back to my first question. Why, why is that? I mean, why do you, is it a, is it a blind spot of executives? They just don't understand anything beyond the soft side of change that you were talking about or what, what do you think that dynamic is yeah and i think uh you're right and i had to build on malcolm's comment the other one that we watch uh, organizations fall into is we never find the money to spend to do it right the first time yeah but we always find the money to do it the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth time and so i think a lot of this is around getting smarter with how we're going to implement change and position change in the organization. One of the things we started to do, Eric, back in about 2013, 14, we introduced our ROI of change management, a calculator, a whole frame. But um, I wrote a paper one time, I never published it, I think I should. It's about, for human beings to make sense of anything, we need context and contrast. So here's a new idea that I'm trying to help you understand. Con 
text is how does it relate to the stuff around it? Contrast is how is it similar or different to the something I already know? And I think when we talk about the value of change management, we've unfortunately done it in absence of the context of the real value it's going to create. Hmm. And so we started to really work to shift this language to um, I started using the phrase people dependent project ROI. What percentage of the project's ROI depends on people adopting and using the solution? It's somewhere between zero and 100%. Um, and one of my biggest pet peeves in the entire world is when people use the word literally incorrectly. But if you want to watch a project leader's gears or a senior leader's gears start to turn, ask them what percentage of this project's ROI depends on people adopting and using the change. And for our most important, most strategic projects, that number is 75, 80, 85, 90, 95, right? Out of the gate. Hmm. And then we can ask the second question, which is what are we investing in driving the adoption and usage of the solution? And often it's we have $500 for mouse pads and coffee mugs. Uh, and so we've created that cognitive dissonance, right? That so much of the value of the change depends on adoption and usage. But historically, we've not right-sized our investments in supporting the adoption and usage of that change. Um, and I think, Eric, this is you know a couple of my fun turns of phrase here uh, that I played with is getting past the head nod. Mm -hmm. So that's one, right? Because um, you know, 20 years ago, when ProSci was really at the beginning of that change management journey, change management was still kind of the crazies in the corner. We hadn't even got the head nod. But over the last 10, 15 years, you know, things have certainly shifted. And so now you're like, oh, we need some change management on this. And oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good. And I need an hour on the agenda. Whoa, 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 whoa. You need an hour of my time? I told you this change management stuff sounded good, right? Uh, and so getting past the head nod is that, you know, it sounds good until, no, you need me to do something different. Uh, and that's where we test. Are we dealing with a passive buy-in? You know, I'm passively bought into change management or active buy-in by that senior leader that they're willing to take the steps and make the investment to support the adoption and usage of the of the change. The other position positional shift that we'll work, here, work at here is, you know, that change management's an investment, not an expense. Yeah. If we see it as an expense line, uh, it gets LIFO'd all the time. And do you have any supply chain background? Yeah, uh, I don't know if the audience does. LIFO is last in, first out. Or it's a way to manage uh, inventory. It's also, unfortunately, what happens to change management on the agenda, on the budget. Mm -hmm. That if we've not anchored our value to the achievement of the project ROI, we're the last on the budget, the first off the budget. Last on the agenda, first off the agenda. Um, but as soon as we start to anchor to the percentage delivery of that, that project ROI, um, that's the position shifter. I, have, I was working with this team, Eric. So uh, a team in an IT, right? IT project team rolling out a big project. We sat down with them and we all did the uh, CMROI calculator. So the change management ROI calculator. We go through and you put in all of the benefits and objectives of the project, how people dependent each one is. You do this big weighting. Uh, out at the end comes the number 62%. So the team collectively arrived at a calculation that 62% of the project ROI depended on adoption and usage. And I'm not a betting man, but I would put money on the fact that it's not 62%, right? Fire. Just based purely on statistics, it's more likely 61 or 63 or 60 or 64, or like just a normal distribution. Um, 
but all of a sudden they had a label, right? They and they began talking about the 62% in meetings. You know, are we how are we doing on the 62%? Do we think we're lined up? Are we ready to, you know, do we have that part of the organization moving to make sure we capture this the 62%? They had a label for this concept of the people dependent portion of the project ROI. And it unlocked the conversations, it unlocked mm -hmm. the way that they began to intentionally engage the people in the organization. Because it wasn't just a communication and a training plan anymore. It was what do we do to make sure we capture the 62% of this transformational technology we're rolling out. And so that, you know, that that context shifting, I think, is where we get out of the, well, we don't, is it nice to have, maybe? Um, I also think the pandemic proved that change management is not a nice to have anymore as well, right? Yeah. Okay, that is the number four interview of 2022 in our top 10 countdown. That's Tim Creasy, the chief innovation officer, talking of... <laughs> I should probably say the chief innovation officer of what he's the chief chief innovation officer of ProSci, and he was on talking about the future of change management. And again, you can find that back on episode number fifty five. So we're up to our top three now. It's getting real exciting here. It's getting uh, potentially controversial. I don't know. People might disagree with this top three, and I'd love to hear comments below. By the way, if you if you have certain interviews you really liked or didn't like, or maybe interviews that we didn't include in this top ten that you think we should have guests you think we should have on the show. Uh, we're already working on Elon Musk and Larry Ellison, all the really big names. Still haven't gotten anywhere yet, but we're, we're pretty, we're getting more confident that in 2023, we might be able to make it happen. Um, but top three here, uh, we're getting into the next one at number three is uh, on the topic of Industry 4.0, which is something we haven't covered yet in this top 10 list. And we hadn't covered a lot of this topic in this podcast in general until we had um, this guest on the show. So when we come back from a quick break, we'll play the number three interview, which is on the topic of industry 4.0. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 100. We're here counting down the top 10 interviews of 2022. We're up to number three. Number three on the top 10 list here is Walker Reynolds, who is on back on episode number 68. He was on talking about Industry 4.0 and manufacturing technology, um, Internet of Things, a lot of different things related to Industry 4.0. Um, what were some of your thoughts and takeaways from that conversation, Kyler? Well, this is one of those interviews where I, I think I'm a, I learn the most um, when it comes to kind of different new emerging technologies and just the overall connectivity of organizations. Uh, so I, I think it's definitely worth a listen. If you haven't heard the whole one, it's very fascinating in the, in the fact of 
we understand truly what is a digital enterprise and what does it mean to be a digital enterprise in 2023 and beyond and how can you utilize that as a competitive advantage but also understand the basic fundamentals that you need in order to activate these new exciting technologies and create actionable results in your organization and that's the the really the biggest piece that I like about Walker is because he not only talks about the beauty and the creativity around the ability to optimize overall digital operations with these technologies, but also kind of the the tactics that it takes and the intention that it takes as a business to ensure that you're prepared and ready to utilize these technologies in the right way. Um, not only that you see the opportunity, but understand the steps that it takes to get there, to be using them at a maximum potential. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's some of the reasons why I liked it so much too, is because he, he puts uh, he puts things in, in context as far as uh, he brings things into focus in terms of how technology can be enabling better manufacturing processes and supply chain processes. And he talks uh, a lot about um, some of the cool technologies that, that factor into that. Um, he's a he's a, a strong personality for sure. He's got an interesting backstory or life story, which is which is tragic, but he's he's kind of turned it into a, a positive thing. And that was another reason why I liked having him on the show is just his general personality and presence. I thought was was very good. He's also a, a podcast host. Um, he's got a podcast and a YouTube channel as well uh, called Industry 4.0 Solutions. Um, so you can check that out on YouTube uh, if you haven't already. But we'll go ahead and roll you the clip here. This is Walker Reynolds from episode number 68, talking about industry 4.0. So, so I guess I have to ask the question, this is off script already, and you know, leave it to me to be the first to go off script before I ever am on script. But uh, I have to ask that I'm fascinated by your mission to save middle-class jobs. Where, where did that come from? Is that, it's, yeah. you said it's your lifelong mission. How did that originate? So I'm, um, so I'm from Texas. I lived in Texas till I was seven. My mom died when I was really young in a, uh, in an act of domestic violence. My mom was this is all part of the the whole the story. Um, my so my mom um, got killed by my stepdad when I was seven, and and wow. so I got adopted by a family in upstate New York. So I think by virtue of the fact that my mom died when I was really young, I and um, my brother and I were the ones who found her body. So I went through this horrible, horrible thing as a kid. Wow. But but the the thing is, is I went through the worst thing I was ever going to go through at seven. So I and I've known that my whole life. So you think about that, like all of the mm -hmm. biggest challenges I've faced in my career, in relationships and anything like uh, uh, an asshole boss is nothing to me. Right. right. Uh, an executive who makes $25 million a year and thinks that he's the smartest person in the room and dismisses the ideas of people on the plant floor just because he's the one who went to Wharton. That guy's nothing to me. He, he, I dealing with him is pales in comparison to what I went through as a kid. But I got adopted in upstate New York in the 80s, in 1982. And obviously, I don't need to tell people that was right at the beginning of the third industrial revolution, about 10 years in, give or so, give or take. And that's when Americans got crushed. American manufacturing got absolutely destroyed by Germans and Japanese because they adopted Industry 3.0 long before we did. And Industry 3.0 is the automation of industrial processes, right? So they adopted the technology. American companies didn't. So what happened was in order for American companies to remain viable, thank you, Lee Iacocca. Lee Iacocca is the one who said, let's go ahead and outsource our supply chain and let's go chase cheap labor. And that's what everyone else did just to stay alive. And so what happened was 
all the manufacturers in, in the Northeast, which we like to call the Rust Belt, they did this mass exodus, right? They all they went to Mexico. They went to China. They went they went wherever they could find cheap labor just so they could stay alive. Now, Americans all thought we all thought it was just corporate greed. Right. And so let's put in trade policy that makes it hard for them to do that. No, it was it was business need is why they did that. And I learned that in college in the 90s. So I in the in the 80s, I saw my friend's parents go from middle class, upper middle class to working at gas stations overnight. Like all the jobs were gone. Right. Wow. And so I, I, I knew that I, I saw it with my own eyes. The corollary between manufacturing and a vibrant middle class and then the corollary between a vibrant middle class and social stability. Right. So if you look at all the all the rage culture we have in the United States, all the, the you know, all the conflict that we have socially, all of that is an extension of the decline in the middle class, every single bit of it. Right. And so when I was in college, I learned I took a bunch of labor courses when I was studying sociology and I learned, no, those companies left because they had to. Now, it wasn't corporate greed. They wanted executives want to keep the jobs in the United States. And, and by the way, we work with companies all day long. Every executive that we talk to, their goal is to keep Americans employed. They're not like, oh, hey, how can I offshore this? They're not thinking that they're only offshoring as a last resort. So. Right. In that first job that I got in mining, sort of everything came together. What I experienced in the 1980s, okay, what I what I learned in school in the 1990s. And I was like, in the 1990s, I was like, ah, I want to I want to help rebuild the middle class. I don't know how to do that. I thought I was going to do it through education. But then I got introduced to industrial automation. And I realized, wait a minute, I can get on the ground. I can actually boots on the ground, transform manufacturing in the United States during this fourth industrial revolution. So when TCPIP won the protocol wars in the late 90s, it all sort of came together. Wait a minute. Americans could be the first to digitally transform, truly digitally transform. And by the way, we have. We are we lead the world in digital transformation. And and as long as we keep our foot on the gas and we keep winning over manufacturers one at a time, what will happen is the middle class in the United States is going to grow through technology positions that the, the employee of the future in manufacturing and operations analysis. That's, that is the future of employment in the United States full stop. And that's what our mission is. Interesting. Well, that's very, very cool story. And it's, it's um, fascinating how it's such a personal thing for you. And you don't hear that often in, in our world, you know, digital transformation. It's, it's usually about the tech and you know, what, what cool new uh, sexy technology can we roll out? But, but you, it's a lot deeper than that. It's, it's oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, we are, we are a values based organization. So uh, we, we operate on five core values. They are our values. So transparency, authenticity, expertise, humility, servant leadership. And we, and we operate in service of one mission to help save and create middle-class jobs by helping manufacturers do more with less using technology. That's, that is our mission. Full stop. And to the point, to, to even this point, I am the chairman of the board at Intellic Integration. I don't have anything to do with the operations, day-to-day -day operations. I'm just the chairman. I'm in one meeting a month, right? Board meeting. And then I'm the, the chairman at 4.0 Solutions. I know nothing about the finances of those companies at all. I get, I get an update once a month at Intellic, and I get an update once a month at 4.0 Solutions. I know nothing. I can't tell you how much money's in the bank. I don't know Unless I've just received the report, I can't tell you what's in the whip or anything. Why is that? Because if I know the financials, if I know the financials, then my motivation will change. 
right? That's human nature. So I focus on mission, strategy, vision. That's it. And there are other people in the organization who are tasked with keeping us in business. But we are not in, we don't make money because that's our goal. We make money so we can change the world. Right. Yeah. Very cool. And it's, I think that's, uh, as Parisa just sort of took the words out of my mouth on LinkedIn, it's, it's, it's inspiring, you know, to have that, that sort of, uh, that bigger picture, longer term goal. Uh, yeah, we, we call it principled capitalism, right? You know, this is, this is why Elon Musk is so loved. Elon Musk is so loved because he's a principled capitalist. He, right. He's a capitalist so that he can change the world and save humanity. Right. right. He's not a capitalist so he can buy a 500 foot yacht. Right. I mean, you right. can you can tell the difference between Bezos and Elon. Right. Bezos is a pure capitalist who's ridden off into the sunset to spend his billions and and build a 500 foot yacht. Elon doesn't even own a house. Right. right. I mean, that that's the difference. Right. The difference is he's a principled capitalist and I am in that camp. And, and, and our partners are in that camp. Every single, if you look at anybody we work with, the first conversation I have with a company when they call us is tell me about your values. What do you believe? And, right. and if, and if, and if our values don't align, we don't even have a discussion about synergy at all. Right. Right. Very cool. So I, I guess just before I get to some questions here, just to acknowledge our audience here and thanks to everyone for joining the, the live stream here. Um, we have people from uh, Caratero, uh, Denver, Colorado, Paradise, Texas, uh, Toronto, um, Melbourne, Norway, Manchester, England, Bergen, Norway, uh, Hanafos, Hanafos, Norway. John, John on YouTube is is also in Norway. A lot of people from Norway here, um, Atlanta, Georgia. So we've got a combination of obviously some people from the U.S. and most not from the U.S. I'll be curious to hear feedback from the audience on on whether that whole middle class um, dynamic resonates with you in your in your home country as well. Um, but just to start here, um, just to maybe set some context, you, you mentioned Industry 3.0 and Industry 4.0 throughout the conversation so far. Maybe just help us understand what is Industry 4.0 and how is that different from the way things work back in the 80s when you were first when you're talking about Industry 3.0? So, yeah, it's it, so very important to note. Industry 4.0, the term actually started out um, in the, the early 2000s, there's a there's a holy war in, in our uh, in, in our industry. What is Industry 4.0? There is a camp that says Industry 4.0 is the specification written by the EU to tell manufacturers how to um, use data, right? How to capture data and use data. And there's this whole maturity model and it starts with computerization and all this stuff. That's all horseshit. It didn't work. The EU all <laughs> says it didn't work. In fact, the EU, there's all reports now that says, listen, this was that that standard wasn't worth the paper it was written on. That doesn't mean that the people who wrote it don't know what they're doing. It was that they just took the wrong step first. That's all it was. Industry 4.0 starts with education, right? That's where that's what it is. What is Industry 4.0? It's the fourth industrial revolution. As a so, as a sociologist, what I know is that our industrial revolutions are they are they're not something human beings created. They are they are a natural evolution of progress. Period. If you create if you create intelligence on another life on another planet, and they're not human beings, they will go through five industrial revolutions. Okay, we we know they'll go through five dust, and they'll happen at the exact same interval, and they will and they'll happen in the exact same order. So the third industrial revolution was the automation of manufacturing processes. So if we start with number one, number one 
Industry 1.0 was really the steam engine. Uh, Industry 2.0 was the assembly line. Industry 3.0 was the automation of industrial processes. It was the automation of the equipment that's in the assembly line. Right. That was that was done two ways. Number one, relay logic, which is just wires and ice cube relays. And number two, with computers. And and at the back end of Industry 3.0, you put programmable logic controllers on all these machines. And, th and those programmable logic controllers created massive amounts of data. The fourth, but nobody captured it. Right. <laughs> there were, they didn't know what to do with it. The data is on the equipment, and they and, and there and there are tens of thousands of events. Right. So, a, a, what is data? It's something that happened and when it happened. Digital data means it's ninety nine point nine 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 percent accurate, and it comes from a smart thing. The fourth industrial revolution really started right around two thousand, and it was the ability to collect the data, collect the data, and transform it into information, so that you could automate business processes. So the fourth industrial revolution is just this space and time that we're in. Now, it's important to understand Moore's law, which is Moore's law applies when it comes to the industrial revolutions, which is each industrial revolution, each subsequent revolution is half as long as its previous one. OK, so the, the fourth industrial revolution is only running from about the year 2020 or 2000 to 2032, give or take ballpark. OK, the fifth industrial revolution, which will be augmented reality and virtual reality. That is, we're walking around with a heads up display and every physical thing we look at, we have digital data over will be in both the metaverse and in the real world at the exact same time. That's the fifth industrial revolution. Right. Um, that will start right around 2032 for real in earnest. OK, mm -hmm. so most manufacturers have another 10 year window to get this to to become a smart company okay to smart become a smart company and then from the by extension from a smart company become a data company all manufacturers full stop during the fourth industrial revolution will have one of three things happen to them number one they will go out of business okay number two they will get acquired by another company who becomes smart or number three they will become a data company I see this thing on Twitter all, all the time. These stock analysts, Tesla's overpriced, right? Here, Tesla's worth a trillion dollars. Well, not today, but it will be again, right? So Tesla's worth a trillion dollars. The next 10 biggest auto manufacturers combined are worth a trillion dollars. Does anyone think Tesla's overpriced? And my answer is, hell no, you're an idiot. Tesla's not a car company. Tesla is not a car company. They are a data company who makes cars. Their primary commodity is the Gigafactory, which doesn't have to make cars. It can make anything. The Gigafactory is designed to make anything. Okay? It is an infrastructure. Giga is an infrastructure. It's not a manufacturing facility. It's not deterministic. Okay? And number two, they're a data company. The car is merely the vessel through which Tesla collects its most valuable commodity, which is data. If you don't become like that, you are dead. That yeah. is what the fourth industrial revolution is. And it wasn't possible really until about 2000. We, hit, we needed networks, we needed smart things, and we needed software to put it all together. And that's when it happened. That was our number three interview of 2022, Walker Reynolds from episode number 68, talking about Industry 4.0. His company is called Industry 4.0 Solutions, as, his, as is his YouTube channel as well. So if you want to check out his YouTube channel uh, with his videos as well as his podcast, you can check that out on YouTube. 
So we are going to shift gears and we're going to get a little legal. We're, we're going to bring in the attorneys, which uh, it always freaks me out. I don't know about you. Anytime someone mentions attorneys, I, I yeah, get a little definitely. nervous, but I'm like, who's in trouble? What did I do? I, I didn't mean it, whatever it was, but <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. But oh, uh, we are going to bring in Marcus probably Harris. my favorite. Yeah. One of my favorite attorneys, which is uh, Marcus Harris, who has been on the show before. I think this might've been his third time on, maybe his fourth. Um, he, in fact, he was one of the very first guests on this podcast. I think he might've been on episode one or two uh, as well. Although this, I think was his best one uh, because we had him on the show to talk about why digital transformations fail. And he he does come at it from sort of a legal con uh, contractual perspective, but he also just talks more generally, more strategically, like the things you should be doing to make your project successful and to avoid some of the failure points that he's seen. And he he does a lot of litigation and things related to, to ERP and digital transformation failures. So he's got a pretty unique perspective. So we're going to play you that clip when we come back from a quick break. In the meantime, we'll take that break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 100. We're here counting down the top 10 interviews of 2022. We're up to number two on our list. And this is the first and only attorney in our in our uh, top 10 list, uh, thankfully. <laughs> no offense, Marcus. Um, but like I said, he is one of my favorite attorneys, if not my favorite attorney to talk to, um, just in general. And certainly as a guest on the show, he was, he was great. And we had him on just recently for the third or fourth time on the show uh, in episode number 94. He was on talking about why digital transformations fail. It was actually a very engaging conversation. We had a lot of, I remember this one in particular because we had so much audience participation and the the uh, the live stream that we we film these these interviews on, which then we sort of repackage and edit and polish up to make part of Transformation Ground Control. That live stream, when we did it uh, in front of the live audience, we did really well. I mean, it just it, the the metrics were probably the highest on this interview than any other interview in the top ten list or any other interview we've done so far in 2022. So he was on the show talking about why transformations fail. What were some of your takeaways from that conversation, Kyler? Yes. And, and though I love our popular live streams, it's always, I'm sitting in the background, like, Eric, ask my question, ask my question. <laughs> right. <laughs> because, You're there. you know, there, there's so much engagement. I know. Well, and there's just so much great content around why do transformations fail? And that, that is so true, especially for people in, um, in an active failure. And I know you and our team here do a lot of expert witness work which is something that, you know, we don't, we don't talk about all the time, but it is something that happens when we, you know, say we graduate from what Tim was talking about in those re the two expensive, the two most expensive letters in digital transformation are RE. Well, this is where they get real expensive, right. Um, on an actual litigation side of why transformations fail. 
I think it's especially fascinating and so important to kind of sound the alarm, as you and Marcus talked about, of transitioning from a legacy system to a SaaS-based system and truly understanding the contractual agreement that you are entering in with a software vendor. It could be your legacy vendor and you're you're going to, you know, a a cloud-based system, but understanding the total cost of ownership, the custom integrations, do you own those or do the system integrators own those? You would be shocked by the amount of people that we talk to when it comes to our client community that might not even be aware of the agreements that they have with the vendors that they're utilizing. And that is just such a high-risk situation to be in. Um, So understanding from Marcus' point of view of contractually, there are so many different levels that you need to be able to understand, identify, and negotiate with when it comes to entering in that type of agreement because it can be incredibly expensive. And unfortunately, it is one of the areas of the industry that lacks the most integrity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he, he, uh, in this interview, he's not shy, just like I'm not shy about calling out those system integrators and the software vendors and some of the shenanigans or games they play, you know, during the the sales process. And uh, again, he's coming at it from a perspective of, I've seen this too many times as an attorney, you know, in litigation, um, I've seen, you know, my team, our team and I have seen the similar kind of thing, either in helping clients recover their failures and, or in being asked to testify in court. And by the way, that's how I met Marcus originally years ago was that I was a um, expert witness for one of his cases. And then he hired me again, I think for another case a few years later. And we've since, you know, maintained a, a good relationship and uh, he's actually our, uh, does corporate uh, legal counsel work for us as well. So a lot of, a lot of different reasons why I enjoyed this conversation, but uh, let's, let's roll the clip or at least a part of a clip from Marcus Harris, episode number 94, attorney at law talking about why digital transformations fail. I guess just to start this, and this is a really broad question that we could, spend the full hour just on this one question, but maybe you could give us a flyover to start. But why is it in general that, I mean, well, first of all, let me back up. I I made the comment early at the beginning of the conversation that one of my predictions for 2023 is that digital transformations will continue to, to increase. And I have my own, you know, hypothesis for why that is, but I guess, first of all, would you agree with that statement? And and maybe we can build off that depending on how you answer that. Yeah, I, I do. I think they're going to continue to increase markedly in the next few years. Um, and I think there's a variety of reasons that I see in my practice. Um, one of the big ones that I'm seeing now is with the pandemic, there seems to have been kind of a rush to get these integrations moving. And I'm not so sure that either the customer or the vendor conducted the necessary due diligence to go down that path. Okay. You know, people were worried. Let's let's you know sell the software. Let's acquire the technology. Let's integrate it in a timely manner. Um, we don't know what's going to happen, and I think the pandemic in particular has created just a number of challenges to successful implementations. And, and as you are full aware, I mean, you know, software implementations have a very high failure rate. There's a there's a litany of problems that that go hand in hand with them, and I think the pandemic certainly from my perspective and what I see in my practice, just accelerated those and, and, and amplified the issues. And we can get into what those specific issues are, but um, I, I think certainly, you know, the pandemic uh, impacted the implementations and integrations and then really you know, imp- impacted negatively the due diligence process, particularly the, the 
review and selection, and then the subsequent negotiation of the contracts that govern that relationship. Is it just that organizations during the pandemic were so, they had so much on their plate, they were so rushed, there was so much happening in the world at that moment that they're sort of rushing through it, or is there more to it than that? Well, I think there's more to it than that. I think that's a simplistic way to say it. Um, and really, when you look at more of the nuance, which is what we do in these lawsuits, it's it's really a failure to properly manage. And one, I think it's it's really, you know, just a perfect storm of situations. Um, you have, you know, vendors that are overselling software, they're underestimating the implementation costs. Um, they're, they're, they're essentially, you know, selling the sizzle, right? And there's not a lot of stake there, which they always do. Okay. But here you couple that with primarily remote integrations with the failure to assign uh, the promised uh, consulting team to the implementation. You've got people, you know, in, in far-flung regions of the earth, you know, India, Mexico, Poland, whatever, you know, trying to do an integration in Denver. And it becomes problematic when it, you know, pre-pandemic, you have a local team or a semi-local team that's coming in on a regular basis, managing it. You know, I, I think that is is one of the primary uh, drivers of the failures that we're seeing. It's just a total mismanagement of a project. Everybody's working remotely and nobody is really um, focusing the way that they typically would on, on a huge digital, digital transformation project. Right. So what you're saying is work from home is not all fun and games. It's not all, uh, you know, there's not all bright upside to working at home. There's also a dark side potentially in this case. Oh, absolutely. I think there's a tremendous start side. I mean, I'm dealing with a failure now where one of the problems is that there was just no management on the vendor side. And I'm sure on the on the customer side, there, there were contributing factors. There always is, right? There's always enough blame to go around when something like this fails. But, you know, we've got a situation where, um, you know, the, the team that was promised was all supposed to be based out of California. And lo and behold, they get into the integration, you know, they keep saying, well, we can't get our team in They're, you know, they're, they're on lockdown, they're in quarantine. Um, there's you know, only certain times where they're available that aren't consistent with mountain time. I mean, it was just absolutely you know, ridiculous. Um, so there's a whole bunch of drivers like that. I think there's some market factors that are contributing to, to uh, the, the problem as well. Uh, there's a lot of pressure from vendors to upgrade, to uh, replace aging systems. Um, you know, they're end of lifeing certain things. So that creates a sense of urgency, which in my view is probably a created sense of urgency to drive revenue. And so, you know, you, 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 you put all these things together with the difficulty that you're already facing in an integration or an implementation. And like I said, you've got this perfect storm of problems. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it seems like too, that, um, you, you talked about the the vendors creating this potentially false sense of urgency to to move to to the cloud. It reminds me a lot of uh, Y2K. For those of you that remember Y2K 20 years ago, there was a sense of panic in the industry that we have to switch our old systems because, you know, if the two digits switch over to zero zero for for 2000, all the systems might crash. And what was interesting is, you know, the comp the industry spent you know, billion, however many billions of dollars on transformations during that time, a lot of them failed because of, for the same reasons. Yet you right. look back and you wonder, did we really have to do that? Because I don't know of any instances of failure or, or consequence of not upgrading. And surely there were organizations out there that did not upgrade. So sort of a similar, to me, it's sort of a similar thing now. It's we've manufactured this panic in the industry that we have to move to the cloud. If we're not in the cloud, we're dying and we're falling behind. And 
it's uh it's really creating a unhealthy pattern i would i would say would you would you agree with that or or how, how does it affect transformations well, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, it, it's this rush to digitize. And I think there's a, there's a comment here in the sidebar and, you know, it asks about, you know, what, what are you seeing more biases, is, is bias in contracting language um, with this rush to digitize it, you know, sneaky language in contracts. And what I see, and this goes to your point as well, you know, with this, with this rush, you know, or even evangelical, like, you know, approach to the cloud, it's, it's really kind of a take it or leave it scenario from a contract perspective, okay? They give you their document and they say, well, you know, it's a standard product offering across our customer base, so we can't make any changes to this. You know, Microsoft is notorious for doing this. Oracle is notorious for doing this. Um, and so you're stuck with a one-sided contract that provides very little remedies um, for you in the event that there's a need to manage that vendor contractually or, God forbid, you've got to file a lawsuit. You know, they've mitigated their their risk so much and shifted it to you because they refuse to even you know take into account reasonable requests to modify that contract because it's the cloud, right? And that's just all smoke and mirrors in my view. Um, and that I think is very much going to come home to roost. Um, and there's a lot of nuance associated with that comment. Um, but what what I do see as far as you know sneakiness or um, you know slipping things in is. And I haven't, I haven't, this has always been the case, but we're seeing it more with this remote concept is that these, these software demos are now being recorded on a regular basis. So you'll actually see as the lawyer, and this is a gold mine for me, um, you'll see the teams, the teams demo, you'll see all the attendees, you'll see who's speaking. And I mean, you know, I, I've always known it was bad, but when you see this evidence in front of you, it's just almost sometimes a smoking gun. I mean, it's, you know, our software can do this. Don't worry about it. it. Incorporates best practices. We're going to integrate it. It's fully integrated system. Um, you, you know, it's it's uh, it, it's you know, it's going to take all. It, it's going to take into account all of your your digital transformation needs, and we're going to be you know, kind of your one stop shop for technology solutions. And you know, you get questions. You know, oh yeah, you know, what we've shown you is actually in production. It's real. Um, it actually exists and come to find out, you know, you get into the integration and they're actually building this technology that was supposed to be, you know, out of the box or something. So I'm seeing a lot more misrepresentations than I have before. And I don't know if that's a function of all these things that we've been talking about, or if it's just a function of now having more access to these digital tools that record these things. Mm. That's interesting. I, I, that never occurred to me and I hadn't realized that post pandemic, you're just, you're leaving a lot more smoking guns behind, you know, whichever, you know, whatever evidence of potential misrepresentation or he said, she said, now you've got more documentation during the sales cycle. And it seems like a lot of these failures, or at least the litigation that you're involved with, if I understand correctly, um, it, a lot of it is stemmed back to or traces back to the sales cycle. So it, in other words, when, when I've been an expert witness for you or other attorneys, it seems like, you know, one of the first things you do is you go back to the beginning of the sales cycle and usually the dominoes are starting to fall um, at that point. Is that, would you agree with that? Or, or maybe what are some other examples of how that might be true? Well, no, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, the, the way these contracts are structured, it forces you to have to focus on the sales cycle and the representations that were made. And so when they tell you that the software, you know, it, it can, can deliver the, the earth, the star, the sun, and the moon, um, that's what you're looking for as an attorney, right? You want the unreasonable misrepresentations and, you know, how reasonable is it? Well, you know, 
it, it's a very interesting nuanced question because you know, going back to my software vendor days, you know, people would say, yeah, did I tell them that the software could do that? Absolutely. And it can, or it could, it's just depending on how much time and money you want to invest in that piece of software to make it do that. They can customize anything, right? So, I mean, you have to go into these things with realistic expectations and understanding, you know, what you're, what you're in for and having done even just a, a minimum of due diligence. If you rely on, on the representations that, that the salespeople are making, you've got to help you because you're going to be in for a real tough time when it comes time to deploy that system or, 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 or use it more importantly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. That was our number two interview in our top 10 list of top interviews of 2022. That was Marcus Harris, Why Digital Transformations Fail. You can find that back in episode number 94. And he's also been, if you, if you really like Marcus's uh, interview, he's been on the show two or three other times. If you Google or, or if you're on my YouTube channel, you can just search Marcus Harris and you'll find the other episodes that he was on, uh, including, I think, the first or second episode that we ever did of this show he was on. I think it was the first one. Um, but either way, he's, he's been on the show multiple times, always adding a ton of value. Really appreciate having him here. So means one thing, means we're up to our number one uh, our number one slot. Now, without giving away anything about the interview, Kyler, can you tell me, were you surprised by the number one? Um, you know, don't give it away. Don't tell us what it is, but you know what it is. But what were you surprised by it? Did you agree, disagree? What, what were your thoughts? Just as a teaser for the audience here. I guess I was a little surprised by it um, in the fact that not not that it's not a great interview. It just, um, I, I it's like, I, I get it, but I also, you know, there's, there's others on this list that I might have chosen for number one. So I'm, I'm Ooh. curious to hear kind of what you thought yes. the, the real gold standard of, of this interview was again, not because it's not a great interview. It really is, but I'm, I'm curious to hear kind of what your, um, your methodology was behind that. Yeah. Well, unfortunately uh, there is no methodology behind it other than, <laughs> other than I liked the interview and it was, it was very, uh, it was one I just enjoyed. And I think it's, it's of all the interviews, I think it's the one that maybe with the exception of Marcus Harris at number two, it's the one that covers the most ground, you know, as far as just sort of That's if you true. had to jam pack everything you need to know about digital transformation in one interview, or at least try to do it in one interview, this might be it. But uh, let's see if the audience agrees with you or me or has a different thought, but we'll, we'll play you that number one clip here when we come back from a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Happy holidays to all of our wonderful clients here at Third Stage Consulting Group. We sincerely appreciate your business and partnership and look forward to serving you in 2023. The entire Third Stage team is wishing you and your family all the joy that the holiday season can hold. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 100. We're here at number one in our top 10 list of top 10 interviews of 2022. Kyler doesn't like it. I do. Well, she likes it. I, I don't want to para- I don't want to, I don't want to exaggerate what you said right before the break, but you said you weren't sure if this would be your number one and, and it wasn't your number one. You had a different uh, top three than, than I did, but um, I'll be curious to see what the audience thinks, but uh, let me tell you first uh, who it is or what the interview is, and then we'll talk about why why I picked it number one, and you could talk about some of your thoughts as well. But this was a consultant panel we did with several third stage team members back in episode number 69. And 
we I wanted to have this conversation just to talk about general Q&A best practices. And I was trying to mix things up a little bit. So this is me trying to be creative instead of just jumping in and doing an interview like I always do, which is just I'm going to ask you really hard hitting questions and I'm going to go deep into all these different areas. Uh, instead, I wanted to have uh, a panel discussion where we sort of not a game show style discussion, but more of a forcing people into a box, which is always fun to do with consultants because myself included, I hate being forced into a box and being asked either or absolute sorts of questions about, you know, what's the best way to do this? It's either A or B, pick one. When in reality, a lot of times it depends or it's both or it's something other than A or B. But in this case, I wanted to make it uh, sort of a, a thing that you had to force fit your answer. And it's also, I, I thought the most fun uh, interview that I've done in 2022, just because, I don't know, we just laugh a lot. <laughs> There's just a lot of funny things that happen in this interview. So it's informative, it's entertaining. Um, those are some of the reasons why I have it at number one. And I think it's just a good summary. If I had to pick one interview that summarizes what you need to know about digital transformation, or at least tries to cram as much as you can into one interview, I think this is the one that, that gets us there. But what, what were some of your thoughts from the interview in general, Kyler? Yeah, definitely. Well, now I feel bad, you know, that I said it was, no, I'm just <laughs> that You're railing on um, my uh, it, number one. Yeah, course. right. It, no, it is, it is very fun. And I always like when we have our international team and sometimes they have me hard to coordinate schedules and, and those types of things. Uh, but it's always very interesting how um, we answer questions specifically in this interview, you know, is ERP dead? You know, you can see like the fear on their faces when, um, you know, you ask that question and, they all want to answer it in different ways um, because in in truth, it's not so much dead as evolving, right? Um, and it depends on the needs of the organization. But I always, I always enjoy having the full team give not only their take on it, but also their real work experience. Um, that's always the best part about having our team on is they're able to give really clear examples from our client work on a day-to-day -day basis of what's going on within a specific industry or within a specific area of digital transformation. Um, and you really did cover kind of all the bases with this one. I do say we need to work on some handwriting skills. That is a lost <laughs> art when it comes to our team, but. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And um, luckily I, I don't think I had to write anything in this interview if I remember correctly, <laughs> which is good because mine's terrible, but you're right. But we, we you know, just to, set it up. One last thing, what the format was, we asked people to write it down, kind of, here's the question, write it down. Then we go around and ask right. everyone to pop their answer up. And then you, we talk about it. Um, and again, the idea was we're forcing you into a box. Like you have to pick a answer for this question, even though that's not always the best way to do things. It was, it was interesting to see kind of people's knee jerk reactions and diverse opinions in some cases, very consistent opinions. In other cases, there were diverse answers that, that we came to, which made it a lot of fun. And I, I hadn't done that sort of an interview before, especially with our own team. So that made it a lot of fun. And it's, uh, you know, you look at the team that was on this panel discussion, that's a lot of experience, a lot of, a lot of strong consulting experience all in one, oh, yeah. one room or one sitting. So uh, that's, that's another reason why. So this is the consulting panel discussion talking about digital transformation, best practices from episode number 69, number one, in my opinion, not Kyler's, uh, on, on the list of top 10 interviews of 2022. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let that go, Kyler. Um, no, I guess it, not. My I feelings knew when are I said it, I was going to regret it for the rest of my life. <laughs> right, right. So let's roll the clip and uh, we'll come back from that. So this is uh, the consulting panel discussion. First question I have for the panelists here, and again, just sort of in the theme of giving a broad brush, broad-based view of what makes digital transformation successful, just to kick things off, 
first question I have for the panelists here is what is the biggest key to digital transformation success? So if you could just, if you could just put it, just write it down on, and uh, Teresa already had her, her answer ready. In fact, we were joking before we went live that you, your answer to everything is probably going to be change management. It so is. The question it's is, it's just change management. That's all it is. Efficiency. All right. So I'm actually just going to run around here and it looks like we've got oh. a few responses already. Um, so Nate says buy-in is, is important. That's, that's definitely a good one. Similarly, Michelle says executive support. Teresa says change management. Greg mm -hmm. says clearly understood objectives for change. And then um, Clifford says defining transformation. Very good responses. So I guess I'm going to pick on you, Teresa, just to elaborate a little bit why. And I'm only asking you this because I know you already had that piece of paper pre-written with change Thank management. For everything. <laughs> so, so why change management? Why do you think that's the most important well, thing? It's important because, in my opinion, um, the entire organization needs to buy into it. They need to adopt it and use it. If you spend millions of dollars or you know hundreds of thousands of dollars on a transformation and nobody uses it, you know you have a problem. So, in order for it to be accepted and take hold, the organization needs to understand it. They need to buy into it. They need to support it. They need to be involved in the process and use it. Makes makes total sense. And then Greg, you, can you show your response again? I think you had, was it clearly defined goals and objectives? Yeah, yep. many times uh, organizations go into the, uh, the idea that they're going to digitally transform. They really don't have it well-defined. They really don't have the objectives for the outcome of that digital transformation. In other words, if we implement all of the uh, the technology, the people, the process changes that uh, Teresa was talking about, what is our return going to be? What is the organization going to look like in a year, in five years? And I think very often organizations don't put enough planning up front or strategy up front into what's going to be needed to accomplish that change, and not just uh, paving cow paths as we say with the, uh, with the, with the new technology, but actually changing the organization for the better. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. And actually what you're saying actually helps enable some of the other stuff like executive support, the buy-in that, that Nate and Michelle talked about. Um, certainly change management can be more effective when you have clearly defined goals and objectives. Um, I'd also be curious from the audience, what, which one of these uh, panelists do you agree with? Do you disagree or what did we miss? What would you add to the mix? We'd love to hear from the audience here in terms of what you think the most important key to digital transformation success is. So please feel free to drop in the chat. Also, as we're going here, if you have questions you want to ask the panel, um, be happy to take those as well. They don't know what's coming anyway, so you might as well, uh, we might as well take some audience questions as well. Um, so please feel free to chime in uh, with any questions you want to ask here. Okay, so we're going to move on to the next question here. Um, and it's somewhat similar, but we're sort of flipping it a little bit from the previous question. And that is, what is the number one reason why digital transformations fail? Oh, man. How much paper do you guys have? <laughs> There's only one piece of paper, apparently. It's all right. It fits. <laughs> she didn't even bring a pen. She just already had that prepared. She just... <laughs> ah, I've been prepared since last night. <laughs> all right. 
uh, before we get to all the responses here, I'm going to I'm going to show a comment here that we had uh, on YouTube. And the, their response here on YouTube was defining the transformation for the business and for people. So that was uh, uh, an interesting point of feedback. And I agree with that. People, the better they understand what the 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 um, the, the goals and objectives are, the better better off it's going to be. All right. So the number one reason why they fail, uh, Nate, you said lack of vision or goals. Um, Clifford says misaligned expectations. Uh, Michelle says wrong people driving change. Interesting. Come back to that one. <laughs> Teresa said, oh, what? Change management. <laughs> wait, Sorry, wait, wait, change management. <laughs> and then, wait, Greg has a balloon. I, how did you? Well, there's. I have a lot of questions. Inflated expectations. <laughs> <laughs> That's you great. know, I, I didn't know these questions were going to come up, but I did have the balloon. <laughs> awesome. That is awesome. You I can't wait to see what other props uh, you might have. Just in case you need it, like to burst someone's bubble, you just have spare balloons <laughs> laying around. That's funny. Right. That's super funny. So, Michelle, what? show me your response again. I remember I wanted to come back to it. No, I already forgot what you said, but it was really good. Um, oh, we lost. Hold on one second here. While, while um, Michelle's queuing yep. up, just a reminder for our audience, Michelle represents um, all of our Latin American um, clients down there. So, Michelle, if you want to say hi to our Spanish speakers in language, definitely feel free to answer anything in Spanish today. Okay, I will. <laughs> Hola. That's about as <laughs> uh, Thank you for I, that lesson, Eric. That I awesome. have a boss that said, I know how to speak Spanish. Salsa, taco, guacamole. You know, I'm like, that's not Spanish. I'm sorry. All the essentials. Definitely. So so the wrong people driving change. Explain what you mean by that, Michelle, or why that's a, a risk or a failure point for transformation. Um, what I was getting at is sometimes the people that are driving the change aren't the people that the workers, um, you know, feel like they want to follow or, you know, um, respect. Um, so I know that that's happened in a couple of projects where the people that are driving that change aren't actually the ones that are um, respected by the organization. And, and so. Right. Like they don't have credibility or yeah, credibility, that type of thing. And, but they get put on a project anyway, just because maybe they have the time or, um, they have a certain role, but it doesn't mean that the people that need to change are going to necessarily want to because of, of the people that are, are driving it. So the people driving change, do you ever see where the people that are responsible for driving change are the ones that are most stuck in the past? Like they don't want to drive the change or they, they, they want to drive their definition of change that maybe doesn't align with the overall goals and objectives or what have you seen there? Um, more, more that, you know, people just decide not to do it because they don't respect the person or the person doesn't have the, um, the, uh, power to really, you know, drive that change. Um, so, uh, I think selecting the right people to, to manage that or to, make sure that they're communicating down to the people that are having to do the change. Having those people well-selected is really important. Um, so that's why I put that. that gotcha. So here's here's a comment or question that I think only you can help us with, Michelle. Yes. I was like, no, uh, people are talking to us in Spanish. Yeah, so, Elias, um, sorry. Um, 
Ilias um, is saying that, yeah, the wrong people are the ones pushing the change. So it's kind of the same thing that I'm that I'm saying. Nice. So we've got we've got some Spanish translation happening in the chat, which is perfect. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for that comment. My glasses uh, to read that little small name, so I apologize <laughs> if I butchered that. It, it is it is hard to read for sure. Um, and then Greg, we had to come back to it. Um, your prop is highly effective, uh, as is the message on your your balloon prop. But uh, the comment here is inflated expectations is the best answer with balloon. But um, so at least one person watching agrees with you, Greg. What, what tell us what you mean by that, or why is inflated expectations? Why is that a problem, or how does that lead to failure? Well, I, I think that. People believe that uh, going into a digital transformation means that everything will come out on the other end as a technology change without any any real effort and support the organization in the way that um, that is envisioned going forward. And that often comes with a, uh, a lack of clear transformational plan objectives and uh, even the governance internally to uh, to make that happen. And uh, very often the, the strategy piece and really understanding where you want to go as an organization, this kind of goes along with what do you see as success for digital transformation is understanding what change is going to happen and how it's going to affect the organization and the return on investment as a result. Gotcha. Yep. Makes, makes total sense. And uh, I, I agree with that. There's a lot of, that seems to be a root cause for a lot of other problems that people mistakenly think is the real cause of, of uh, failure. For example, change management, back to Teresa's point, you know, if I have unrealistic expectations, chances are fairly high, I'm going to cut change management because I had unrealistic expectations and I need to force fit my project into a timeline or, or uh, budget. So you end up cutting something like change management and then you blame change management for the reason why the project failed when really maybe it was because you had unrealistic expectations all along. Okay. Well, that is the number one interview of 2022. Uh, from our top 10 list of 20 interviews from 2022 from this podcast. And that was uh, the consulting panel discussion talking about digital transformation best practices. You can listen to that whole interview back in episode number 69, which is where we pulled that clip from. But there was a full hour. It was a, it was a pretty long discussion, actually. We went over an hour, I think, on that one. So you can hear the rest of that uh, if you'd like to go back to number 69. So that is our top 10 list. Thank you for uh, chiming in here. I'd love to hear your feedback uh, in the comments here and what what interviews particularly stood out to you, which ones you agree or disagree with. Uh, you want to pull a Kyler and tell me how you don't like my number one or any others, uh, please go ahead and do it. Uh, I actually really like the feedback, even though I'm never going to let Kyler live it down. So uh, love, love to hear your feedback in, in the chat there. And, and again, look forward to another uh, great year of this podcast and next year, Kyler. We've got some good guests already lined up for 2023 and really looking forward to seeing if we can uh, take this show to the next level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, thank you for sharing your list with us. Absolutely, yes. Thank you for uh, recapping your your top three as well. And uh, there's two of the three, which is two out of three ain't bad, as uh, Meatloaf once said back in the '70s. If you're a rock and roll fan, um, so we got two out of the three uh, the same. Uh, at least we, two of your top three were in my uh, top ten list. So some consistency there, and a lot of great guests we didn't cover too. So I encourage you to go back and listen to some past episodes or at least scroll through. I understand that not everyone has time to listen to a couple hours every week, but you can go back and look and see what topics we covered, who the guests were. Uh, it's probably easiest on YouTube because you can search on there for certain topics within the podcast playlist. Uh, if you go to my channel, there's a, a transformation ground control playlist that has all the episodes, uh, all 100 episodes are on there. Um, but you can also uh, certainly go back and scroll through any other 
uh, any audio podcast platform or if you're on LinkedIn or whatever, you can go find it there too. So um, thank you for a great uh, year of the podcast. We look forward to uh, everyone having a happy new year. If you're listening to this as we as we release this podcast, uh, happy new year. Hope 2023 is a great one for you. And we'll see you in the new year on a new episode of Transformation Ground Control. Have a great week and a happy new year in the meantime. Thank you.